BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hey everybody, uh, Robert Evans here along with Garrison and Chris. Um, We are preempting the episode that will be airing after this because um, of events that happened in Portland, Oregon this weekend on Saturday the 19th. There was a weekly racial justice march. Um, the march, again, it occur- it's occurred every week for a couple of years now. Um, it is ostensibly led by the mother of uh, a uh, uh, Patrick Kimmons, who is a, a Portland, a young black Portland man who was killed by the police a couple of years ago. Um, this is a regular thing as a general rule. You'll see a lot of folks on the right talking about this march as like an Antifa gathering. Um, this almost never gets any coverage whatsoever because as a general rule, um, it's, it's just a march where people, you know, uh, protest police violence. It's not something that, that tends to, to draw much attention, um, even within Portland. Um, this Saturday, a person who lived in the neighborhood where people were assembling for the march, um, left their home, 
confronted a group of women uh, who were acting as corkers. Corking is a, a job at protests. It's a traffic safety thing. It's people on a mix of usually bikes, motorcycles, scooters. Every now and then you see like a one wheel. And their job is to kind of route traffic around the march in order to keep people from getting hit by cars. Um, it is a, a safety thing. Um, these folks were confronted by this person, reports on the ground that have been covered in local news from people who were there say that he started out yelling at them, calling them terrorists, and um, according to one person who was on the scene within about 90 seconds, began firing. Uh, he hit and killed one woman, um, and he wounded four others, um, and he himself was shot by a protester who was nearby, uh, who was... To all, everything we know so far, legally open carrying a rifle. Um, he is the shooter, um, is in critical condition in the hospital. Um, one of the people who was doing traffic security that night is dead. Um, I believe at least one is still in the hospital. The others have been released. Uh, that's that's the the actual, like, that's the, those are the facts of the situation as they're known. The protester who returned fire quickly afterwards turned themselves and their rifle into the police um, you know, the police did the stuff that they do in these instances and then released the person who had responded defensively uh, to the shooting. And that's where we are right now. Um, Portland police have been very cagey in saying anything about this. They have framed it as a clash between a homeowner and protesters. Um, one thing we can say based on where this person came out of, it does not appear that they were a homeowner. It looks like they left a um, would have been like a, a rental thing. Not that that particularly matters, but it's interesting, the framing that the police are choosing to use here. Um, and yeah, there's there's fairly little information. As of right now, the name of the shooter has not been released by the police. Um, neither has the name of the protester who responded um, to the gunfire. But uh, we do know, you know, a, a number of the people who were hit. Uh, we know the person who was deceased. Avoid kind of spreading... Anything more specific than that until there's there's evidence. There's not yet video of this, although one of the people who was there says they have a GoPro that was taken by the police that may have something. I don't know the extent to which we will get that information. Um, again, the police have been acting to uh, kind of make this look like a clash rather than what the evidence that like reporters at OPB and the Portland Mercury and even the Times have have found the interviews they've conducted um, it seems fair to say that this was a mass shooting um, that was stopped by a protester as opposed to what I would call a clash. Yes. Um, but that's that, it's obvious Portland police aren't going to want that narrative to come out. Very tellingly, the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, issued a statement where he talked about the shooting as a piece of the city's ongoing gun crime, did not mention the woman who was killed, did not mention the injured, but expressed his sympathy with the police for being so tired. Um, so, you know, that's Portland. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty sick. And like, you shouldn't like, it's not like dismissing it by saying it's Portland and saying like, this is like, growing. no, yeah, there's, like, there's, there's been growing rhetoric from the city and people yeah. the past few years that have basically been encouraging something like this to happen. Um, and now that it has, it is also pretty sick looking at different like media framing and police framing yeah. talking about it's a homeowner and how it was like, yeah, it was like a clash, not like an outright attack on people. Um, yeah, so it's 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 bad. It's it's, um, it's pretty gross. But what we can do right now is support the people who were there, 
uh, yeah. the GoFundMe for for medical Support. expenses and you know mental health effects in the next, yeah. Yeah. next, Cause, cause next it, bit. Some um, of the wounded were themselves plugging up the bullet holes of other wounded while they had also been shot because it was yeah. a lot of the people doubled as medics or had some sort of medical training. Um, there were medics who were like threatened by police when they arrived on scene for not being willing to stop providing um, pressure to a gunshot wound. Like a bunch of ugly stuff happened. There's a mix of ugly stuff and like stuff that seems ugly but is pretty normal. Like the ambulance did not move in immediately, which obviously people on scene were very angry about. That is standard everywhere for like ambulances yeah. at active shootings, and it's just it, it. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's also like they're not ever acting from as much information as the people who were there maybe have. I'm not. I'm not gonna blame you know EMTs or whatnot for following SOP in this situation. I will blame the police for their responses to stuff like this, obviously. And the fact that, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's unlikely that a satisfying police investigation will be conducted. That said, it does seem like we already, based on the early reporting that exists from, again, a number of different news uh, organizations, a number of different local journalists, that we have a pretty good idea of the basics of what happened. Um, obviously, more will come out uh, in addition to, you know, I, nothing but... Uh, respect to the medics who responded. Um, I think it's worth acknowledging that the protester who shot the shooter um, seems to have, from the evidence we have, handled themselves uh, as close to perfectly as you can in a defensive shooting. Um, they stopped the threat. Um, they went to the police. They turned in the rifle. They did not. And, and there's a number of reasons for this, including the fact that, like, the last time there was a shooting that uh, was involved a left-wing demonstrator. That person was hunted down and killed by U.S. Marshals. Yeah. Um, but it also, I think, helps when it comes to the legal stuff that's going to wash out on this, the investigation. It really helps that this person dotted their I's and crossed their T's to make it very clear that this was a um, a very like legal self-defense situation. Obviously, I think a lot of the folks who participate in these things don't particularly care about the law one way or the other, but in terms of how other people see what has happened and what the fallout to this is and maybe the degree to which uh, people properly put some blame on the city for this, I think it is helpful that the person who responded um, with their rifle to this shooting conducted themselves so carefully. So, I mean, I have, I have a lot of respect for everybody on the ground. A lot of hard decisions had to be made, um, and it, it seems like in a a the worst case scenario situation, the people who were on the ground handled themselves um, with a tremendous amount of of thoughtfulness and uh, and courage. I think that's everything. Yeah, I don't think there's not, not yeah. much else to say at this moment right now. Stay yeah. safe. Be careful. Um, and uh, again, the go GoFundMe. Just type type GoFundMe stand with Portland into Google. It will take you to the GoFundMe, um, and you can help folks out there. Hello, welcome to It Could Happen Here. Uh, I'm Garrison, and today we're talking about two of my favorite things, uh, which is uh, unions and coffee. Um, uh, joining me, as usual, is uh, Chris and Sophie. Hi. What do you guys think about about co coffee and unions and the combination thereof? Big on unions like that, like like making them, like having them uh, not big on coffee. It's uh, it's too bitter. I can't mm. do it. Unbelievable. 
Uh, uh, Union's great. Coffee, great. Chris, bad. Chris gets the wall. That's, <laughs> oh, no, it's the ultimate canceling. <laughs> that is canceling's yeah. gotten are, more intense. We are coming down on the coffee issue. Yeah, don't I, don't so. ever tell prop that. Don't ever tell prop you don't like coffee. I worry for you. Um, and anyway, to to join us to discuss uh, coffee and unions is a uh, uh, union organizer and uh, 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 also someone with a podcast. So that's fun. Uh, uh, but uh, Kaylee Schuler. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You Thank know what you. they say about unionized coffee. That tastes it, better. It, it tastes better. That's <laughs> yeah. That is that is that is what I have heard. I uh, much better is, quality. That is true. Maybe that's the problem that Chris has been having. This yeah, is true. None of your there are no unions unionized. here. Yeah. yeah. See, that's a, that's the thing. That's a, Chris jump to jump to conclusions, but you failed. You <laughs> failed to consider the uh, the coffee question. Um, anyway, <laughs> we're gonna be uh, talking about unions and coffee and Starbucks today because there's been a massive wave of Starbucks uh, location unionizations around the country. And I like to start by kind of discussing the origin of this like wave of unionization efforts all across the states. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll just say right off the bat, like um, legalities, logistics, the nitty gritty is still not my forte in all of this. Um, so I might not do the best job explaining it, but I'm going to do my best. Um, and to get into the origin story of the whole movement. I'm just going to get into my origin story a little bit um, with this effort. So um, I started working at Starbucks last year and uh, not long after I was approached by uh, my fellow partner, my friend, Tyler DeGuer, and he's also one of our committee members here. And he was like, Hey, did you hear about what just happened in Buffalo? And as you guys probably know, uh, Buffalo was the first to unionize. Um, and so he was really excited about it. I was like, yeah, sounds cool. Probably not my thing though. Um, and he was like, no, it, it is like, just let's talk about it. I was like, all right, fine. And we talked about it. I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. We should definitely do this. So, um, as far as I know, this, uh, started in Buffalo, they reached out to workers United, uh, cause they knew that this was something they needed and wanted, um, and then when they successfully unionized, I mean, it just sparked so much, uh, inspiration across the country and we hopped on really quick. Um, other locations in Boston also hopped on not long after and, uh, yeah, it kind of spread like wildfire. Yeah. It's been wonderful to watch the kind of wave of uh of of attempts and in some cases like in a lot of cases um like successful attempts uh just kind of take a you know just go all like it how fast they've been happening in so many mm. different places around around the country um yeah i'd like to talk i like to talk about like why the starbucks unionization kind of effort is so important like why mm. why this is a, like, of course, like unions are obviously like generally a net good, but like, mm -hmm. why specifically is, is it's is, is it important to unionize these Starbucks locations? Like, what types of like um issues is the unionization trying to kind of solve and give you know workers better better conditions at these at these uh, stores and cafes? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. And first, I want to start by saying Starbucks is a great place to work. 
I, I say that all the time. I reap the benefits. There are benefits, good ones. Uh, they pay minimum wage or whatever. Like the, the pay is decent. We have benefits. It's really a, a lot of people who work at our Starbucks say it's one of the better jobs they've had. And we deserve a union for it's, I mean, really in my brain, it's kind of akin to insurance, right? You have it in case you need it. If an emergency happens, you don't have to pay the whole um, ER bill out of pocket. You've got some coverage coming from somewhere, right? That, at least in my mind, is what this union is for. Um, That being said, we also just want to obviously democratize our workplace. We want to have a spot at the bargaining table because we, you know, we have HR, we have people to go to, but unions are partners looking out for partners and that's it. Starbucks looks out for partners and uh, profit. You know, it's a business. It's a huge business. Um, So this would just give us um, a stronger sense of empowerment. And uh, again, I I really think of it kind of like insurance. It's just us uh, making sure we're taken care of at all times. Yeah. And what what type of kind of I know whenever the discussion of unions kind of starts at workplaces, there's always like an element of like secrecy and, you know, like mm-hmm. being worried about, you know, different types of suppression. So what types of kind of things have people been doing when the, when the union is like trying to get, is trying to get, trying to get off the ground to organize? Like, is, like are people using like signal chats? Like what, what is, what is like mm. in these, sto- in this, in these stores, how is, how are we trying to get more people to be like be comfortable with this idea and get like get started with the organizing process. That's a really good question and we're still doing that work all the time. That work doesn't really end especially because um th- it's commonly known now so I don't feel as scared to say it but there are being there is union busting happening. It's happening all the time. Um, and it's scary and it's intimidating and it's meant to be, and it's effective, you know? So, um, we have a a majority yes vote in my store. I already know that, but it also takes upkeep. It takes maintenance. Um, it takes checking in with people and, you know, for my money checking in and saying, Hey, how are you feeling about this? Are you doing okay? Like, I know that this is scary. I know that you're hearing things like, do you have any questions? Um, it takes us doing our due diligence and researching the things that they're saying. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a constant thing as far as like technically how it's done. I mean, lots of group chats, just like way too many group chats. That, that has been most of my experience with most, most political organizing in general is just way, way too many group chats. Yeah. In terms of like what Starbucks is doing to start their like union busting response is this website that they've launched. Yeah. I, I, I know you've, I, I know you've tweeted about this, uh, about this site. So I, w- I would love to love to discuss it. Yeah. I mean, I just went off. I didn't really think much of it. You know, I just, I saw it on there and just was like, this is lies. Um, I mean, well, for one, I'm I'm trying to remember everything I read and tweeted, but the one that's coming to mind is when they say this may affect your relationship with your store manager and it may make it difficult for uh, to me, 
that is that may depends entirely on how much um, union busting Starbucks wants to do. If you want to tell our store managers that this will negatively impact our relationship with them, if that's how you want to frame it, then yeah, it probably will. Um, if you if you want to make it more difficult by not negotiating the contract easily with us, um, yeah, then that might happen. It's not, that's not a union problem. That's a Starbucks problem that they are framing as a union problem. Um, yeah, I can't, what were the other things that I commented on? I I would just like to also explain like what the site is and what it's like trying to do. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's union busting. It's uh it's giving it's giving partners the facts that they need yeah. to know. You know, like it's it's <laughs> we want to make sure that you are informed before you vote no. Um that's what that is. Yeah, it's this like sleekly designed page that has the list of facts about about yeah, union I mean, organizing and all the reasons why it's gonna negatively represent negatively affect your relationship with the Starbucks Corporation. Oh, yeah. this was one of the points said, um, the union may not negotiate for some things you are hoping for and some things you value now might go away. That is so ridiculous. That's a threat. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, threat. That's a threat. <laughs> That's a threat that your well-being will be changed. Like we might not negotiate this contract very nicely with you. That The union is us. They love to talk about the third party and, oh, your, your store manager is going to have to work with a steward. The steward is going to be someone who already works in the store. Yes. (laughs) The steward is us. The union is us. Why would we negotiate a contract that doesn't benefit us? That's so silly. It makes no sense. It's, 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 it's very typical union busting kind of behavior. Mm. And if, you know, if they can just, if this type of propaganda, you know, can just convince a few people and, and, and scare and scare only, only a couple of the people, that'll be enough to kind of, cause division and shut down efforts in the store right so that that's that's all that their goal is is to prevent you know at least one more store from not doing it that's like as, as long as they do that yep. then it's then it then, then it's like successful um absolutely and, you know based on how many people work at an indiv- individual individual store that's not like entirely unlikely right is it'll you know it, it will like you you union busting efforts do work in a lot of cases and that's why they still yeah. do them like that's absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's really important for, um, you know, if there are any partners listening to this, um, and partners, by the way, is what, you know, we call ourselves at Starbucks. Um, yes. The, the, um, social aspect of this within your store, the checking in with your partners and seeing how they're feeling about it and having, um, as many face-to-face conversations as you can have and really, really sticking by each other is really important because, yeah, like I said, these um, tactics are tried and true. They're effective. They're intimidating. Um, and so you have to really support each other through that and keep reminding each other, like, no, there's a reason we're doing this. This this is actually still a good thing, you know, because on yep. top of our jobs and then a lot of partners are in school or they have families like we already have a lot going on and then we have to go into work and be reminded that our desire for a union is not 
um, valuable to Starbucks. And so they're going to make things harder by doing all the things they're doing. Um, you have to really, really be there for each other through this process. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, solidarity. One of the key, mm-hmm. one of the key tenants of this type of, you know, this type of organizing. Absolutely. I know Chris is a pretty big union appreciator. I mean, I, I, I like unions, but, but Chris, Chris really, 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 really enjoys the unions. So I'm wondering if you, if you have anything, uh, he likes uh, them so much. He'll, he'll even like unionized coffee. He'll be like, this coffee's delicious. Oh, it will, it will, it will, What's in it, this? it will convert Chris. Absolutely. Yeah, some, some of the, some, some of the, the, there's some stores in Chicago that are unionizing and I'm like, Hmm, maybe, I should, maybe we should go check them out. Yeah. You should yeah. at least, at least check them out and say like, hi, and be like, yeah, you know good job guys. Great- What's a great thing to do? Um, definitely go to those stores, go up to the counter and offer your, or um, order your coffee and then ask them to write like Union Strong or We Love Unions as your name. Because um, when the baristas are making the coffee and they st- like see that sticker come through, it's we really love that. Chris, they have great tea there too. Ice cream. That's yeah, true. I, well, I, I, I drink a yeah, yeah, the honey citrus mint tea, it's honey really good, or the chai. Like, that's, listen, that's I'm really saying helpful I, information though about like, yeah, we have a, I there's finally a store that's like somewhat near Los Angeles where I am that that has announced that they're unionizing, which is exciting. Like, okay, wow. California, way to join the party late, but <laughs> you know, it's it's cool. Go ahead. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. One thing I'm interested in is. Like how how big is the shop? Like how how many, how many people are are sort of like well, I'm not not just like like just how how many people there like could potentially join the union? I mean, anyone could. I think we have about twenty. I could be so wrong, but I think we have around twenty partners in our store right now. Um, and yeah, any well, yeah, just about anybody could join. That, that not seems anyone pretty... who's salaried yeah okay but I mean, that, that, that seems ra- that seems pretty common across all the different stores is around that or it's around like 20 union eligible people per location seems roughly accurate based on the stuff i've seen from you know seattle to philadelphia to boston to buffalo to you know all all places in between and yeah so par- part of part of like the actual more organizational structure is uh, linked to Workers United. Yes, part of the part of the Service Employees International Union um, affiliate kind of, of a family of unions, um, who's kind of led the led the campaign, or you know has been part of the campaign um, mm-hmm. to unionize the you know thousands of locations mm-hmm. through the states. And yeah, I think around like eighty locations, including two of the company's flagship ones inside Seattle and New York, have have joined this this effort. And it does seem like every day there's m- like more stores yeah. popping up who are who are who are saying, "Yeah, this is a good idea. This is you yeah. know whether it be to you know be like, yeah, some of our equipment is old and it's like you know it causes like heat burns because it's not like maintenance properly, or being like, yeah, well, there's a lot of like sexual harassment caused mm-hmm. by you know, like some like some like patrons that never gets addressed by management yeah. <laughs> um and, and uh-huh. you know, or you know saying like yeah i maybe deserve to be paid more than 15 dollars an hour um mm-hmm. 
with rent being, you know, as high as as high as it is, maybe I mean, we should be paying over twenty bucks an hour. I don't know how everybody else is doing, but my rent situation is interesting. So I'm I mean, definitely rent, rent has <laughs> been ballooning in recent in recent months. Even yep. it's been it's been really going up. Which I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that at, at some point on the show here. But yeah, like there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that are being like yeah. Maybe people should be paid more. People should be at the bargaining table. There's a lot of things to address to make it a safer mm-hmm. workplace, to make it a mm-hmm. workplace where you're more respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it's really nice to see people saying, yeah, I'm not going to put up with this anymore and we can do something about it. Because like, there are mechanisms to to do this, right? That's why mm-hmm. it's happening. So that's that's very uh, very exciting to see, to yeah. see this taking place. It really is. And it, you know... You make a lot of great points and bring up a lot of the benefits of having a union. And it just like, it just surprises me how anti-union Starbucks is, is period. Um, Cause it's just, it's like, I don't know. You, yeah. You paint such a beautiful picture because it is a beautiful picture to have autonomy and um, respect and empowerment in the workplace. You know, they, uh, <laughs> they train us to work through the lens of humanity, you know, by their words. And, uh, it's pretty humane to let people have a say, a real say in the workplace, you know? Yeah. I think it kind of exposes that type of, you know, pretty, pretty corporate language. That Performative. Is, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I am interested in like the other, like kind of union busting or soft union busting kind of stuff going on even like before this website in terms of how like man like how like management's been responding um and how more like like what like what like the local responses to when stores start mm-hmm. talking about this yeah and and another follow up to that is i i noticed that covid was mentioned on this on this website mm-hmm. is that being brought up within union busting at all or is that brought i just it was like a huge red flag for me that they used like well we helped you during covid like right. we were there for you which, yeah like, that, that 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 is I hope so which really I mean, did not sit that's well like with yeah. me. that's like that's like uh, that's like abusive terminology that is, that is pretty manipulative to be yeah. like we we helped you during a pandemic it's it's like well yes as you should because yeah. yeah you're the place where i was employed i give something to you you give something to me and yeah and as i twitter ranted in the comment you know like with peace and love we had to beg to get our cafe closed you know like we we like it wasn't like we just uh cases rose and they came in and said hey guys we're gonna close it like we had we were calling and um making a stink and i mean we were talking about striking but then remembered we're not unionized yet so we didn't but um yeah, yeah. i mean it was we yeah we were really fed up um with people sitting in there for hours with their faces out, you know, as cases were rising. So, um, yeah, great point. That's really pretty manipulative. Cause like you should be helping us do- through yeah. COVID. Um, that's not like a, that's not a benefit. That's just, no, that's like, that's not just her. Yeah, it's, it's it's not killing people. That's like, should, so should kind. be something that's just kind of always there. Yeah. Um, sh- shouldn't shouldn't be an extra, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, as far as um, you know, sort of local um interference, I guess I'll say um, 
I do want to say, um, in my case, our store manager, um, I really care about her. Um, I have a great working relationship with her. I really respect her. She's done a lot of good for our store. Um, and she's really just doing the best she can having conversations with us. Um, she has her opinions and feelings about it and I just try to listen to them and she listens to mine. Um, but they're definitely, yeah. I mean, as soon as we filed for an election, we started actually, as soon as we started organizing and they sort of caught wind, um, we started having barista meetings, Mm. which are as vague as they sound. Um, and people who had worked there longer than me said, we've never had these before. Um, maybe once, you know, in a few years. Um, so we started having all these meetings and not even talking about the union at first, but all of a sudden they wanted to hear from us and fix things in the store and, and all this stuff and be super helpful and present. And then there definitely just was a heightened, uh, corporate presence in the store. Um, people we'd never seen before coming in like, Hey, how you doing? Want to talk? It's like, no, you're a stranger. (laughs) I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) Um, so that was weird. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's, there was definitely, definitely just a shift in presence. Um, again, we have these meetings and, um, yeah, it's been interesting. What, what do you kind of, how do you see like the situation resolving? Like, do you, do you, like how, how, like, do you, um, have, has, and also like, yeah, what's like the state of, of, of your stores specifically? Yeah. So we are, um, on our way to an election. Um, we've requested an election. Uh, so we're really just like in a waiting period for that. We don't know exactly when it's going to be. We've heard, soon um but who knows when that is um we yeah we have some we we had to like do a zoom hearing for some of the legalities for things here in massachusetts uh that was interesting but yeah so we're we're just waiting for the election at this point and the election is what will uh you know that's when we're going to cast our yes or no vote um and we will find out whether or not we're going to unionize and I, I think we will unionize. It's looking that way. I'm confident. Um, and I really look forward to that. What do you think, um, like, what do you see is happening after the vote is done? Like, like assuming it is a vote, yes. Like, how do you think this will impact um, working at the store going forward? It's going to be interesting. And it's going to be an adjustment, right? Because from the time that we vote and we vote yes, let's say we vote yes and we're going to unionize, there is, it it could take a long time. It could take a year. We don't know. It could take more and less um, to get from that vote to, you know, what we refer to as the bargaining table um, to negotiating a contract with Starbucks. Um, And in that time, there are things, um, and again, if partners are listening, you can do your research on this on the NLRB website. Um, There there are things that will be um, different in that waiting period, right? So if if Starbucks decides to release um, a nationwide 
um, spring raise, because why not? We love giving you raises. Um, we would be exempt from that because we're in negotiations because we're in this sort of in-between spot. Um, there, there are little weird things that we might have to just be aware of no going in, um, in that sort of interim, uh, yeah. And then eventually, you know, those raises and any other things that we've sort of been waiting on get brought to the bargaining table. Yeah. I, th- I think this is an important thing for people to understand when, when you're doing union organizing, right? Is You know, you, you have this giant push and you have like, you have to have the push to get to get either recognition or to get this, the, the national labor relations board vote. But mm. most unions that go under go under in like before the first contract and you have to like, that's, that's something that, you know, when, when you, when you talk to people who, who are professional union organizers, they talk, they talk about this constantly, which is mm. like, you, you have to hold it together during, during that period between your first, like be, between when you, when you're, when you, when you would get recognized or when your vote and that first contract. And it's hard in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because the things you're talking about, like management will do, you know, they'll, they'll intensify the union busting because they're hoping the union will still fall apart. But mm. if you hold it together and if you get that first contract, your union, like, you know, you, you now have a union and you, you've basically stabilized. And at that point, like you, you now have a seat at the table and you have to like take your seat at the table and fight. Yeah. But it's, it's a big responsibility. Yeah. When, when you say hold it together during that time, do you, do you mean like um, just through those changes and that interim and that sort of weird, awkward phase, like you have to like just hold it together like mentally and just kind of power through it. Yeah. Well also, I mean, you, you have to like, you have to just keep making sure everyone's involved, which is something yes. that yeah. is difficult because mm. yeah, especially after sort of the initial people lose steam. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, and cause people have it's also a have like a job to do at, yeah. well, this entire yeah. time. Yeah. Right. They're still, they're still making coffee. They're still making podcasts. They're still doing whatever. So yeah. you still have, have you your guys work. Ever, have you ever done, this is, sort of beside the point, but it's fun. Have you guys ever done like the um, 16 personalities personality assessment? At some point, yes. I've, I've never done it. <laughs> it's really fun. I just did it for school. And um, it it's the thing that tells you like, I'm an INFJT. Yes. And my thing is the advocate. Sophie, what's yours? You look like you had one ready to go. I don't remember what it was, but I remember having to do it like 15 times in school. <laughs> yeah, I also yeah. I also forget what I the one that I did for when I was in school as well. But I I brought it up because I'm thinking I want to send it to my fellow organizers and be like, do this, and we can sort of highlight what each other's strengths are, um, sure. and start playing into those. Because, like you were saying, Chris, like it really is a team effort, and I think it only really works if you are utilizing people. And respecting people's strengths, you know, because not everyone has the same strengths. Like, yeah, you might be a kick-ass graphic designer, but like not everyone can do that. You know, maybe they're better at hosting get-togethers or they're better at writing emails or whatever, you know? I think, yeah, playing to strengths is so important in the long run because, yeah, it can take a year to get to the negotiating table, which, which like, is horrible. Like, that shouldn't be. Like, it, should, it shouldn't be that long. Um, and, you know, tactics such as, like, specifically, you know, 
raising wages around a unionization effort so that people yep. in the union don't get it that is like another form of union busting like that yep. is like mm. do, like don't think they haven't thought that through like that is that is part of that whole process being like oh yeah you could have a union or you could get higher wages now like that's like that's that is part of what's going on it's because they yep. want people to not sign on to have long-term benefits so they're going to offer these short-term benefits so like it really is like because of how elongated the unionization process can be it gives a lot of time for people to get burnt out um and and combating that and like combating being burnt out is one of the most important parts and yeah it's it's really it's really challenging sometimes oh my gosh absolutely i mean i love that conversation i'm like a mental health dweeb um, it's, it's my, it's what my, my podcast is called your messy friend. And, uh, that's basically all I talk about is mental health and yeah, the burnout. I mean, I'm recovering from burnout right now, you know, um, it's very real. You have to make sure that, you know, while you're taking care of everybody else and making these efforts, like you have to make sure that you are checking with yourself every day and making sure your needs are being met. Cause Giving from an empty tank does not last long. <laughs> yep, as I'm sure you guys know. Yeah, yeah. if you uh, if if you're if you're if the water in your espresso machine is out, then nothing can flow through to <laughs> make the espresso. anyway. No uh, well, stretto shots for you, baby. Exactly. Yeah. See, it was what a amazingly crafted metaphor. <laughs> I just did. not tortured at all. Um, any, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So what is the like turnover rate at the store like? Like how how quickly are people coming in and out of of jobs and how has that been affecting organizing? Oh. A cool question. Um we haven't had a ton of people leave since hmm. I got there. I mean, and I definitely I can pretty confidently say none of those had to do with unionizing. Um hmm. it was all for just like different reasons. Um, we've had quite a few more people come in recently. And I would say that, um, I mean, it's, it's weird because our current store manager, uh, who's great. She was hired around the same time that we really started amping up union stuff. And, you know, it's almost unfortunate because I think she thought it was, it was about her and it just so wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but yeah, so it, it, I, who knows if it was just cause she was there now or because of the union stuff or both, but, uh, they did start hiring quite a few more people, um, around the time that we started organizing. And yeah, I mean, it's, you have to walk this fine line when you have new people coming in, of course you want to get to them and give them your info, um, or at least give them resources to look into, uh, before corporate gets to them. Um, but then you also they're, they're learning a new job. Yeah. It's really fast paced and overwhelming. Yeah. Like you have to be careful not to totally overwhelm them either. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really something I've just tried to keep in mind throughout the whole process is like when my friend Tyler approached me, I was like, I don't know what this is. I, I don't, I don't know if this is necessary for me. And now I'm on the committee you know um yeah. <laughs> so I, I you know what i mean like it's that thing where i'm like okay if i could be convinced maybe anyone can 
Yeah. All right. Is well, there, um, is there um, any uh, direct action that people who are listening or any call to action you have for us that we can uh, provide uh, to our listeners or links or anything that you think would be useful for our people to know? That's a cool idea. Yeah, thanks. Um, like we mentioned before, if you want to just like stop by your local unionizing Starbucks and get a coffee with the name, you know, unionize or union strong that like that in-person support, especially when you're first organizing is really, really helpful. Even just stopping by to like drop off a card or say, Hey, good luck with unionizing. Um, that really means a lot. Um, you can follow, uh, SB workers United on Instagram and Twitter and just engage with us. Um, reach out if you need info about how to organize the people on Instagram are so, I mean, on all the platforms they are just like, so on top of responding. Um, and, uh, websites. I think we have a website. <laughs> I would, I, I would assume so. I, I would assume at this point. Yeah. I mean, we have a pretty pop in Instagram and Twitter, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm forgetting anything. I think that's, that's about it. Um, and just making noise on online is also really helpful. You know, I love when people comment on Starbucks posts and they're like, yeah, how about unions though? <laughs> yeah. How, the, what uh... about a little union? <laughs> the website is uh, sbworkersunited.org. Um, Thank you. Affiliated with the, the, the Workers United and the Starbucks unionizing effort, which has ways to you know, like donate or buy buy merch in support of the union and that kind of stuff, which funds all go to the go to the campaign. And, you know, just in case it wasn't clear, like and this is something you'll hear from Starbucks is all of this about the third party and Workers United is going to do this and that and blah, blah, blah. We essentially, you know, we work with that. They, they promote our cause. You know what I mean? They're here to support our mission and our goals. I mean, you'd be amazed by how much partners do for this, you know, so much, but we, we do the nitty gritty every day, communicating with each other. We're communicating nationally. Now we have a platform for that. Um, and yeah, it's really cool. And so like, they are, they're kind of like, I don't know, the supporting beams of, of everything we're doing. You know, yeah. it's us. But yeah, but like the actual makeup of it definitely is with Starbucks employees. I've, I've like, yeah. in all, in all the people I've been in like Twitter conversations with or DMs who are involved, it's like, yeah, like everyone who's like actively involved in doing it all has worked at a Starbucks before um, and still, and still are. Like it is, it is definitely being led by the workers. Yep. Um, yep. And yeah, that's r- really great and really crucial. Um, do you have any, do you have any other, uh, pl- pluggables either for yourself or for, uh, yeah. yeah anything plug else in general? Pod. Plug your pod. Yeah. yeah. Thanks guys. Um, this was really fun. Thank you for having me on. I love podcasting. Um, so yeah, I mentioned, uh, SB workers United on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you give them a follow, follow baristas you find along the way who are, you know, speaking up about this, show them your support. Um, my podcast is called your messy friend. Uh, you can find me, I think wherever you get your podcasts, definitely Spotify. <laughs> that's what I use. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Well, thank you so much, Kaylee, uh, for, 
uh, joining us today to talk about Starbucks and unions. Um, you can follow us online yeah. on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. And I think that does it does it for us. Can't wait for y'all to win. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Can't 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 wait for you guys to win. If, yes. As soon as as soon as Portland locations start going, I'll definitely go in and support. But until then, I will make coffee alone in my in my, <laughs> my 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 lonely my own my, my lonely espresso machine. Um but yeah, thank you. Th- thank you so much for uh, for coming on to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and even occasionally about trying to 
put them back together. Uh, today, as is too often the case, we're going to be focused more on the falling apart uh, thing because today we are talking about the situation in Ukraine. Um, it is as I, I type, or not type because I'm not writing, but you know, you get how I'm used to thinking. As I say this, uh, Russian troops have just moved in to two regions in eastern Ukraine that have been occupied by what are generally called Russian-backed separatists uh, since 2014. Uh, Vladimir Putin gave a speech that I will be we will be talking about a bit with our guest um, and announced his intention to recognize those breakaway sections of the uh, country as independent republics. Uh, and the area that he has chosen to recognize includes about 70% territory that is currently occupied and held by the Ukrainian government. So it's a big mess. Uh, this is, some have said, like a soft version of the invasion uh, that people were expecting. I think it's probably more accurate to say it's a, a, a slow start um, compared to what is potentially possible and very likely coming in the future. To talk more about this and about being an anarchist kind of trapped in between you know, NATO and Russia and everything that's flinging around right now uh, is Ukrainian journalist Romeo Kukratsky. Romeo, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Been a big fan of yours. So it's an honor, honor to be here. And you are in, you're in Kiev right now, right? Yeah, correct. And, and how is, everybody keeps asking this all around, but how is the mood um, as, you know, to the extent that there's a way of saying that? Like I've, I've, you know, have things kind of taken a turn since Putin actually made his first big play? I mean, as much as journalists like to say there is no magic moodometer yeah. to check, yeah. <laughs> to instantly pull every resident of the city to find out. Yeah, where walk around and talk to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> just like all, all the four million or whatever citizens of the city. Let me just let, let me just ask them. Um, but like there definitely has been a turning point. Um, yeah. Like one of the big refrains that uh, I've seen like personally and everyone has been saying, right, is that Ukrainians are so calm. Look at these pictures of them like shopping in malls and like going to school. <laughs> what like, else are you supposed to do? Yeah, honestly, what else are we <laughs> supposed to do? <laughs> but I mean, it is true. People have been calm. But since yeah. yesterday evening, there definitely has been a shift um, and even casual conversation uh, in Kiev, like I was sitting to to paraphrase a famous columnist's usual framing, I was sitting in a cafe in Kiev and overhearing the waitstaff chat amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, the 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 whole conversation is, oh, is Putin going to push into Kiev? And anecdotally, or semi anecdotally, I guess, um, apartment prices in the western cities, like in Lviv and Ushgorod, have really spiked up, like incredibly. <laughs> Oh boy! Um, so that, people are. I wouldn't call that. That's a some, depressing like, way to pay attention to that, or reason to pay right? attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> like I wouldn't call it a mass panic. Um, there are no like bank runs. No, like all the stores are stocked. No one's like hoarding. Um, but at the same time, there is a steady trickle of people going west and kind of making plans at this point. Yeah, and. Um... So this to kind of give a, people a little bit more context before we get into some of the more political dimensions of this. Um, right now, there has not been a massive 
escalation um, of violence outside of the areas where there has been fighting for several years. You know, there has been an escalation on the front line that's existed since 2014. Um, but there has not been like, you know, troops pouring across the border in other areas and stuff. And that's obviously probably the number one worry. Um, it, it looks like what's about to happen is, or at least it's hard to say, because Putin has recognized the borders of this breakaway part of Ukraine as significantly larger than the area they actually control. And he has moved troops, Russian active duty troops into that area. Now, Russian troops, I'm, from what I've heard, about 3,000 have been in the breakaway areas for years now. Um, but yeah, a significant – rotating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A significant number have been added now. And obviously the fear is that because he has recognized the territory of these, these quote-unquote, in his terms, breakaway republics as being much larger than what they control, that Russian troops are going to participate with the separatists um, in attacking and taking those territories from the Ukrainian government. Um, that's one concern. Obviously, the the concern attached to that is that it would be not at all inconceivable for a conflict that started that way to spread to a much wider part of Ukraine. Um, this is all coming alongside a speech Putin gave that unfortunately is going to be one of those things people hear about in history books. Um, utterly yeah, Just out of its of myself, goddamn yeah, mind. It's utterly deranged. And, and it's one of those things. We will talk some more about how the Western left sometimes. I, I, I don't want to be like, because this is also largely the, the online left, but how the online left talks about Putin sometimes. This was not a, I want to return to the Soviet Union speech. This was, I want to return to Tsarist Russia's borders type speech. Like <laughs> I mean, the, the guy has the Tsarist imperial crest emblazoned on the gates to his palace. Yeah. So I'm really not sure what people would have expected. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, he's better at his job than any of the last czars were because he's he's achieved a notable amount of success towards that goal already. Um, And yeah, he, he a number of things that were, it's one of those, like one of the things he said, which is a line that folks like him in Russia have been saying for a while is that uh, Ukraine's, the existence of Ukraine as an independent polity is a mistake. And as an anarchist, you know, there's this like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't like the Ukrainian state. I don't like any state in particular. But if you're, if your only disagreement is with the, the statehood of Ukraine and you're fine with the statehood of Russia, you know, then, then perhaps what you actually think is that people in Ukraine should not have any autonomy to disagree with the government in Moscow. Um, and I think that's the case here. Um, there's a, there's similarities between how Putin and those like him in Russia treat Ukrainians, um, with how, for example, the Turks treat, uh, Kurds in the Southern part of the country. There's this, this thing you'll hear a lot from Turkey where like, there's no Kurds in Turkey. They're, they're mountain Turks who've lost their, uh, their language. And there's this denial from Putin and the Russians that Ukrainians are a people, uh, that they exist. And there, this, this is a, something that has translated most people have heard versions of this in just any of the coverage you've heard of Ukraine. If you've ever heard of it referred to as the Ukraine, what that is is part of a very old um, line that kind of exists to allow Russians to deny the existence of Ukrainians as a people and make it make it seem more like it's just kind of a geographic region, which is not the case and why you, you wouldn't refer to – you wouldn't call it the Ukraine any more than you would call it the Canada. Um, it just isn't the way you – you say should say that. But um yeah, so I, I think that's 
at least enough of a background to get into the real meat of what we want to talk about. So, And I'm just going to kind of open this up to you to chat about what you'd like to t- say and what you think needs to be gotten across to the international left, because internationalism is, is something we value a lot here, and it has been hard to find in this conflict. Yeah. Uh, like, growing up in New York in the 90s, one of the core values I kind of absorbed, I guess, through osmosis is the value that every single person I met, regardless of whatever corner of the world they came from, mm-hmm. is the exact same human being as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, and, and that kind of realization was one of the things that, I guess, I wouldn't say pushed, but um, conspired to to turn me into a leftist, a socialist Marxist. Um, and part of that, especially when I was learning about what the hell all these isms were, um, was internationalism. The idea that, well, our struggle isn't within the the fabricated borders of whatever um, polity has, has decided to impose their, their authority. Um, but internationally, every single worker is the same as every other worker. We're all struggling with the same issues. We're all fighting the same forces. Um, And generally speaking, we have the same enemies. Uh, Now, fast forward to 2022, uh, I go online and what do I see? Well, Ukrainians are all Nazis or Ukraine shouldn't exist. Or how can we support either of those? It's two fascist states fighting each other. And I'm sorry, Ukraine's got a population of 44 million. You want to tell me that every single single one of those 44 million are Nazis. Like people didn't even say that about Germany. Yeah. They were literally the Nazi state. I mean, or the United States um, for or that the matter. US. Yeah. Like we had four years of Trump, an openly fascist uh, authoritarian leader. And no one seems to say, well, I guess the U.S. should be bombed. Well, I guess there are some. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely people who say that. But yeah. <laughs> but generally speaking, <laughs> that's not exactly the the view that people take. Right. Um, so it's it, it's been a long process of disappointment. Well, I say long. Um, there's always been the the kind of, well, what do these people really think about Ukraine? But bereft of such a, a strong impetus to take a side, I guess. Um, it hasn't been in the forefront. And now every day I see people that I would have considered comrades, that I would have considered um, friends and brothers just kind of turn their back on me. Because I live here, right? Any any aggression, any action that's taken will literally affect me physically <laughs> sitting here in Kiev. Um so it's been it's been really, really immensely disheartening to see that every single value um, that I thought the left was supposed to value, that, that I thought the left was built on, um, be betrayed by people with rose emojis or hammer and sickles in their uh, usernames or whatever the hell it is. And we should probably talk about some of why this is and what the what the history is here. So. The most kind of direct thing that people can point to when they when they call Ukraine a fascist state or when they talk about this is the existence of the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is a paramilitary organization. That means it's it's not officially a part of the governmental military structure, but it it does receive it has received arms from the government and it uh, f- 
functions as part of Ukraine's defense forces um, for the per, for the purposes of, of fighting off the Russian-backed separatists. Um, and the Azov Battalion are Nazis. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the the you can. There's been a tremendous amount of reporting on that on that matter. It's a, a a big problem, and the Ukrainian government deserves a significant amount of criticism for the degree to which Azov has been allowed to continue existing. Um, but there's also a lot that gets left out when people focus on that, including the fact that, for example, the political wing of Azov right sector, which is kind of the that it would be fair to call that the umbrella term for like the far right parties in the Ukrainian government have been pretty effectively siloed away from political power um, through very active measures to about like, what is it, 1% of um, like representation. And so yeah, it's- they didn't actually pass the threshold to enter the new parliament. Yeah. Like they're they're non-entity politically. They're just non-popular. Their yeah. um, campaigns fail. Their mottos mm-hmm. fail. Their agitation fails. Ukrainians do not want to vote for Nazis. Yeah, and it's it it is it is a an ugly situation. I and I remember talking with when I was reporting on the Maidan uprisings, which is when uh again for people who who aren't up on recent Ukrainian history, they had a president who tried to do a dictatorship um and people rose up and fought him in the streets. Um it was a very gnarly time. About 200 people were shot by government forces. Um, and eventually the president was forced to flee the country, which is what precipitated everything that's happening now because that president was pretty closely tied with Putin and the people fighting him um, were not all – they were not pro-NATO rebels, but they were more – definitely more supportive of closer ties with Western Europe than they were with Russia. Um, and that – again, those are kind of the precipitating events for everything that happened – that's happening now. Um, and some of the people who were fighting the president's forces were – fascists. Um, And it's one of those things I remember talking with protesters at the time who were like, well, am I supposed to get in fight with them at the same time as I'm trying not to get shot by riot police? Like, what what do you expect me to do? And it is a nasty situation. And it's one of those things. um, I don't know, like, I I, I, I don't know what to, to tell people about that, because it's 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 ugly and it's uh, uncomfortable and it's messy and that's also Ukrainian history. There's a lot of ugly, uncomfortable, messy things here, as there is with every country's history. It doesn't mean that people in Kiev deserve to have their housing blocks pounded by Russian artillery. It doesn't mean that people in Avdivka deserve to have their homes pounded by artillery. Um, and whatever criticisms you want to make about how the Russian government or how the Ukrainian government has handled Azov, and there are many criticisms to make. That's not really relevant to the people living in these areas, having their homes destroyed on a daily basis by mortar fire. I just want to make like a couple of things really clear. The Azov Battalion is like a thousand guys. Yeah. Like Max. And the reason, one of the reasons at least, that they rose to such prominence in the beginning wasn't only their um, ability to, to mobilize in the early stages of the Russian war against Ukraine. Uh, it was also because they had very strong financial backing um, from the former interior minister, um, yep. Arsene Avakov. And Avakov is no longer in power. Uh, and one of the things you can see immediately was the like almost nullifying of fascist street marches and fascist demonstrations um, in Kiev, outside the president's office. That all vanished because more like in Ukraine, Ideology is not very strong. And this is something 
um, that I've noticed a lot of people uh, from the US and Europe have trouble understanding about Ukrainian politics. People here are not really ideological. Our parties don't map, um, aside from a couple of outliers like right sector, um, it doesn't really map to any left-right access. Um, people typically will always want the same policies. Like they always want a pension. They always want um, universal health care to be better. They always want the roads fixed. Um, generally, policy is something most Ukrainians actually agree on. Um, as a result, most of our elections are purely personality-based. Uh, that's one of the reasons um, Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, our current president, won was because mm-hmm. He was a well-known comedian. Yeah. Uh, and people liked his personality. And he put out a whole TV show as a PR stunt. Yeah. Um, before launching his campaign. And people <laughs> voted for that personality they saw on screen. Uh and so when there was far-right activity, and, and again, I want to stress that that activity, even the street activity, has almost disappeared. It's because the far right is typically used in Ukraine as a political tool by one oligarch or one interest group against another. That's why when the money disappeared, they disappeared. Because the leaderships, uh, the leadership of these fascist groups, typically speaking, were not um, that ideological themselves, but they did like having USUVs and they did like buying guns and um, hiring hookers and doing drugs. Like they liked the money and that's why they did it. And they would convince a bunch of teenagers to go out and wave a couple of torches and march and chant. But these guys were really purely in for the money. Um, and again, you can tell that because when their financial backer disappeared, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah. And it's one of those, one of the things that is very frustrating to me. I can remember one of the earliest projects that I did that was like a, a for Bellingcat as we were, there was a, a pride march in Kiev that got attacked by Nazis. This was a couple of years back. And we were kind of trying to identify the individual fascists who were like beating people in the street. And it's spending hours pouring over that footage. It, it makes it incredibly frustrating that there are people outside of the country boiling it down to, well, all of those people are fascists. All of those people are part of a fascist state. And it's like, no, some, a lot of those people, quite a few Ukrainians have fought Nazis in the streets, you know? Um, that's a reality of the situation. And it's, it's, um, and it, it's, it's ugly in part because if you actually want to look at what's been happening uh, with the Russian-backed separatists, there's a lot of fucking fascists over there. Um, there's a lot of uh, paramilitary organizations and like far right groups that have been used by that the Russian government. Wagner PMC. Yeah, yeah. Literally, um, literally named because they're fascist leader. Yeah, <laughs> like Wagner, like many Nazis. It's it, it it's it's hard to to understand honestly from my perspective, um, because not only is Russian fascism have far more influence on Russian policy than any Ukrainian fascist has ever had in Ukrainian policy. Um, it's also that the Russian project and the narrative they use, um, there, there's this uh, joke they call, or not really joke, a slur, they call na- they call Ukrainians Nazi Banderists. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, Bandera was yeah. uh, a, a Ukrainian nationalist leader, a partisan, fought against the Soviets, uh, and... He his organization was impl- uh, implicated in 
quite a few war crimes. Yeah, significant um, number of war crimes. Too many war yeah. crimes. Yeah. Uh, so clearly, Bender himself, probably not a great guy. Yeah. Uh, but to delegitimize all Ukrainian kind of independence movements that have propped up over the years, the Soviet government and now the Russian government has always, always insisted that there is no legitimate way for Ukraine to be independent. We're all Nazi Benderists, mm-hmm. no matter what. And that's why you had, um, there was a picture a couple of days ago of a solidarity march in Kiev um, with uh, some of uh, Kiev's LGBT community holding up Banderist flags. Not because they're gay Nazis, but because it's a way of um, yeah. retaking this slur back from the Russians. And it's all part of the complicating factor here is that because of how geopolitics worked out in that period of time, there are very uncomfortable but kind of inextricable ties between uh, Ukrainian – the the basic idea of Ukraine being a nation independent from Russia and anti-communism. And because of what was going on in anti-communism in that period of time, we're talking the 30s and 40s, it means that a decent number of those early Ukrainian nationalists were either directly implicated with the Nazis like Bandera or at least had uncomfortable ties. And that's a messy part of history that shouldn't be shied away from. But for example, the same thing is true of Finland. Like, you can say the exact same thing about fucking Finnish uh, nationalism, Finnish sovereignty and whatnot. Um, And people don't call Finland a Nazi nation, Um, even though, yeah, the fact that they were stuck between the USSR and Nazi Germany means that there were a lot of Finns in that period of time who made some real fucked up choices. Um, Like, but also there's a lot that has to be like, you can't adequately discuss why those choices were made. If you don't talk about, for example, the Holodomor, you know, which was the starvation genocide of several million Ukrainians uh, by the Soviet government. Like, and it honestly, was, to, to yeah. go back even further um, and to, I don't know, <laughs> burnish my leftist foundation a little bit, if you go back to the Civil War itself, where yeah. um, a lot of this started, most of the nationalist groups, I would say nearly all of them, there were one or two monarchist, minor monarchist groups uh, in Ukraine, but the grand majority of them were, in fact, socialism or mm-hmm. socialist. Yeah. They had like the hammer and sickle and wheat on their currency and everything, because at the time that was what won votes uh, from the peasantry. But when the Bolsheviks crushed every independent Ukrainian social movement in exchange for uh, bureaucrats that they imported from the empire and just shoved into Ukrainian cities, uh, well, then you had Ukrainians that wanted to be independent and wanted to have uh, a better life than under the czar, well, now suddenly they don't even have that support um, from the Bolsheviks. Uh, and obviously, as a Ukrainian, um, I can't talk about this without bringing up Nestor Makhno, yeah, who was a uh, anarchist leader, the leader of the Ukrainian Black Army um, during the Civil War. And what happened to them? Well, the Bolsheviks betrayed them and killed all of them and crushed the movement. Uh, and then smeared them all as... Um, Pedophile rapist cannibals, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of of, of <laughs> disinformation you can find about that time. Just like today, you know, uh, only the names have changed. Exactly. So if there is no other outlet for Ukrainian nationalism, and 
the group that you thought may be an ally mm -hmm. in uh, yeah. destroying the empire, in granting you self-determination, turns out to be a continuation of that exact empire. Well, it's pretty logical, maybe not right, but it is pretty logical yeah. for people to go to the uh, for people to go to the other extreme. And it's one of those one of the things I think that should be noted more, as we talked about earlier, is that one of these stories of Ukrainian politics, particularly in the last God, close to a decade since the Maidan, is that mainstream Ukrainian political leaders and Ukrainian voters have overwhelmingly rejected that sort of nationalism this time around um, and have gone out of their way to silo it out of active political power um, in a way that one could argue is more successful than has been done in the United States. Um, and yeah, absolutely. We didn't yeah. elect Trump. <laughs> yeah. No, you get you guys basically elected Jon Stewart. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, that was his... Um, yeah, that was yeah. his whole thing. He put on satirical political sketches. Mm -hmm. That was yeah. the entire show. Um, we did basically elect John Stewart, and you know, I have my criticisms of Zelensky, um, as a lot of people do. Uh, and one of the things we love saying in Ukraine, whenever people are like, "Oh, look at all the look at all the Nazis there," we're so not we're so anti-Semitic that we elected a Jewish comedian. Yeah, that's how yeah. that's how anti-Semitic we are. That we yeah. have huge menorahs standing in the middle of Kiev during the high holidays. That's how that's how anti-Semitic we are. Yeah, and and Zelensky's uh, prime minister is also a Jewish man, which makes Ukraine the second country in the world to have a Jewish president and prime minister. Um, yeah, like we don't care because it's not. It doesn't even yeah. come up in campaigns. Like what? Even when Romney was running, you'd see Democratic mm -hmm. campaigns um, painting him as a scary Mormon. Or uh, the ads implying, and yeah. you don't even have that level of religious antipathy in Ukraine. It, it's 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 just a much more complicated. We're actually talking about the problems of the far right and and of fascism, you know, in Ukraine. It's a much more complicated story than a lot of people on you know social media or whatnot want to give it credit to, because it's just easy to sum things up in one sentence and not have to care about a looming humanitarian catastrophe. But that is what we are looking at. If this invasion, it will be bad if Russia uses active forces in order to take the remainder of those two provinces from the Ukrainian government. It will be a nightmare of almost unimaginable consequence if the invasion proceeds on the wider scale that is possible at this point. Um, and now, it is... I've been a... Oh, sorry, go on. No, 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 please. Yeah. Um, I've been a doomer on this basically since I, I first heard about the buildup um, because Putin has made it very clear over the years what he considers Ukraine to be. Like you mentioned, he doesn't think that Ukraine should exist as like a polity. Um, and as a result, uh, I have pretty much this whole time been pretty sure that he's going to attack you. Um, and now we're coming to a very definite tipping point. Um, just today, Putin's made a lot of moves. Um, like you mentioned, he uh, authorized military force to be used um, in the Donbass. And actually, he's gone further. He's authorized military force to be used abroad, uh, which, I mean, obviously, that means Ukraine. Where else? Mm -hmm. That's where his, like, the about, I think, 70 or 80 percent of the entire Russian army is currently around Ukraine or close enough that they can reinforce 
um, w- without a, a lot of yeah, or at least of, of the active duty because the Russian military there's an, a smaller, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but actually competent, soldiers. right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. But the professional, the contract soldiers, yes, yeah. Um, and especially on the northern border, uh, there are a lot of battalion tactics groups that are basically sitting and waiting, I guess, for whatever the order will mm-hmm. be eventually. Um, and in Belarus. And since Putin has given this authorization to operate abroad and he stated that he recognizes these puppet authorities, as I call them, um, that he recognizes their borders as uh, the entirety of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, oblast, which, again, only a third of those territories are under the de facto uh, control of the puppet authorities. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of both provinces are still um, under Ukrainian government control. Uh, including the the critical port city of Mariupol. And now that Putin has authorized force to be used abroad, well, it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, at least it is incredibly obvious to me what the next steps are from the Russian perspective if I want to subjugate Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and I think a big failing here is people in the West, especially the Western left, um, know very little uh, of, for example, the Chechen Wars. Oh, God. Uh, especially the Second yeah. War and what happened to Grozny. Yeah. Um, after, during that war and what the Russians did to subjugate that population. Yeah. And if anyone thinks that Putin treasures Ukrainian lives any more than he did Chechen lives, then I've got a bridge of the Dnieper <laughs> to sell them. Though you should act now because the valley's going to drop real fast. Yeah. And it's one of those, if you, as a good leftist, uh, have spent a significant amount of time reading about the horrific crimes of of imperialist nations in Africa and Southeast Asia and in the Americas. Um, what the Russian Federation did there is is on that scale. It, it's it's absolutely on that scale. It was a it was a a, a titanically ugly war. Um, and I mean, any modernly, we can look at what they did in Syria. Yeah, but, or what they are doing in Syria. Yeah, yeah. And what they continue to do in Syria. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, um, Syrians learned this lesson that I am learning now about yeah. big portions of the um, Western left a long time ago. Yeah, which is that if you can find, for example, some Syrian rebels uh, who are shitty and Islamists or whatever, you can tar every single person who ever stood up against Bashar al-Assad as a, as a terrorist um, which is really easy, especially if you're getting paid Kremlin money to advance that line and you, your name is Ben Norton. <laughs> yeah. This brings us to the place where there really aren't clear answers, which is like, what can be done? And it is one of those things where it's like, well, uh, that's not an easy question because you do have to when you start grappling with like, all right, well, like, should what should... NATO do what should other European non-NATO nations do like what 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 is actually uh capable of like potentially altering or disrupting the the courses of action here well we're talking about the Russian state which has a lot of nukes um we're talking about a situation that could spiral out of control in a way that very few situations globally are capable of potentially spiraling out, spiraling out of control and so it is a uh, not a situation where anyone who tells you this is clearly the thing to do that will work is, I think, trying to is probably full of shit and a little unhinged um, because 
this is a real fucking ugly one. Um, but some of what has been done, um, we just got the news today that I think we both found surprising, but is very positive that the Germans have canceled uh, construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a, a, a gas pipeline from Russia into the EU, um, that a lot of folks were saying Germany was not going to take any sort of stances, solid stances on Ukraine's behalf because of that pipeline, because of how Germany, along with a lot of Western Europe, is tremendously reliant upon Russian gas exports um, for just like keeping themselves heated in the winter. Um, so that's a positive move. I, I tend to be critical of the ability of sanctions to do much. Um, and if we're looking historically at sanctions, particularly how they're most often implied, they have a tendency to just harm regular people more than they have to do. Like we can look at the sanctions in Iraq, right? Which which were part of why something like a million people starved. Um, we are talking about different kinds of sanctions in general. When we're talking about the sanctions being imposed by NATO countries against the Russian state right now, they're largely sanctions against members of the Duma. Um, there's, there's a lot... It, it's not the same as looking at like what was being done to Saddam's Iraq. That said, I, I'm still very hesitant to say I think that sanctions are going to disrupt Putin's course of action. I'm curious what you think can and should be done here. You know, like what is – do you have any kind of clear idea in your own head about what might have a disruptive effect on, on what Putin is doing? Learn to teleport and shoot Putin in the head with a 9 millimeter. I mean, I mean that would be that'd be great. There's there's a if, 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 had uh, no, we that teleport I mean, had had we that teleportation capacity, there would be a list, uh, you know? Unfortunately, unfortunately <laughs> I never put my skill points into that. Yeah. Um but realistically speaking, the Russian state is authoritarian. It doesn't really care what its own citizens think. It definitely yep. doesn't care what other people think. However, um Russia has been, at least in um the modern realm relatively image conscious um which is why i think one thing that could work for example or not could work but would perhaps force the russian state to consider its actions a little bit more carefully and i want to be very clear when i talk about the russian state i'm talking about putin himself yeah the government um, he has no there's no like other decision makers in Russia. And that was actually perfectly encapsulated um, during his speech the other day where he just outright um, like eviscerated the head of his foreign intelligence service on live TV for the whole world to see, just utterly humiliated the guy for no real reason, <laughs> just because he can. And you could see that, and we're talking about Russia's top spy. I mean, beyond Putin himself, stammering like a frightened school child when Putin addressed him just a, with just a hint of sharpness. Yeah. Um, so when I say the Russian state, I am referring literally to the body and person of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and like, honestly, yeah, I would love to see people picket Russian embassies and uh, make demonstrations and marches and so on. Um, do I think that will have a practical real effect? To be honest, no. Same with the sanctions. Um, I'm sure Putin's uh, pet oligarchs and members of his party and the uh, the people that, in theory, keep him in power, um, the oligarchs, the, the parliamentarians, the mafia lords, and so on, 
I'm sure they're going to be pretty miffed if their yachts and their uh, multi-million dollar properties in Miami and New York and London and the villas and the French Riviera, when, when all that gets taken, I'm sure they'll, they'll be pretty annoyed. Um, but I don't think Putin cares. I think that he has a really irrational um, desire to subjugate Kiev specifically. Um, he sees Kiev as um, what we call in Russian the, the mother of all Russian cities. Yeah. It's the, um, the I mean, birthplace the, the, of the Kievan Rus. Yeah, the, um, the word Russian comes from Kievan Rus, you know. Like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I just uh, don't think that Putin is going to turn away from that goal no. Um, because a couple of his buddies are complaining that their mega yachts got taken no, in by the British no. authorities or whatever. No. Um, nor do I think they're going to care that, you know, there are a couple of marchers outside of embassies in New York or something. Um, but that may help spur the world as a whole, the international community, into taking a harder line stance against Putin. Because time and time and again, um, like the guy's a gangster. He's he's like a security service thug. If you've ever like interacted with like a petty like sergeant, police mm-hmm. sergeant or something that has just a bit of authority and pretty much total impunity, that, that's put into a T. Um, the dude thinks he's overeducated uh, and the cleverest man in the world. Yeah, I think. Um, but in think, reality, the way he yeah. talks and the way he acts, he's just a bully. He's 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 got the same basic personality as like Villanueva, you know, the 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 fucking head of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. He's like not like a beat cop, but like one of the cops who rises to run a union or run a city police department. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's good at consolidating power. He's good at at exercising or organizing others to exercise violence on his behalf. But yeah, at the end of the day, he is primarily a bully, and it's one of those. Um. I don't know, like when it comes to arms shipments, that is a, a, a historically, again, if you look at the history of particular, like, let's just say specifically NATO shipping arms places, most of the time that does not improve the situation for people in that country. That that has been a, a historical reality of arms shipments, not just with NATO. As a general rule everywhere, when you ship more guns into an area, that that rarely improves quality of life. Um, but we are not talking about a country that has had any kind of centralized political legitimacy or whatnot collapse. We're not talking about a country that is in the middle of tearing itself apart between 30 or 40 different sides. Um, it's not the same situation as, well, let's ship a bunch of guns to Libya, you know? Um, it, it just isn't. They're different histories, different uh, political realities on the ground. I don't know that I actually think any amount of arm shipments would dissuade Putin from advancing either. Um, but I, I don't know what else to do. I, I certainly am not against the idea of like, okay, guys, have some AGTMs, you know, have some wire guided missiles, have some javelins. Um, because like, what else are you going to do? Um, I mean, we're not going to, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying we should send U.S. troops in, um, because. Again, we have to consider the nuclear situation too. Um, I don't, what do you think is? Uh, wh- where are your thoughts there? Because um, this is something that I, I, I'm very, I'm very mixed on. Although again, I'm I'm broadly fine with. Yeah, I mean, at least give people the ability to fight back. Yeah, it's a difficult one, especially 
like you noted, the military industrial complex has very rarely improved yep. any situation in the world anywhere. Yep. This might be one of the few exceptions. Um, because the fact is that Ukraine doesn't really have the tools to defend them, uh, to defend ourselves. We have, um, or at least our government claims that we have the strongest army in Europe, which to be honest, with all of the, the defense cuts that European countries yeah. have made over the years, that may be true, um, at least on a ground sense. Certainly the we, most combat experienced army in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but what we lack entirely is air power and air defense. Yep. Um, and what Russia has in spades is air mm-hmm. power and air defense. And as we saw um, when the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq, well, you can destroy conventional army in a couple of days by just bombing the shit out of it. Yep. Uh and the Russians have quite a few missiles um, aimed straight at Kiev uh, and quite a few planes waiting on standby, I presume, to bomb the shit out of Kiev. Uh, and it would be nice to have some way to, to defend ourselves against that. Um, but again, there's, there's not much that can be sent. Yeah, of course, stingers and javelins and so on. Um, that'll all help raise the costs of the occupation yeah. that follows the initial bombardment. Um, but, but if Putin goes for the strategy that Assad has used in Syria, which is bomb the living shit out of every civilian um, residential area in the city until the people yep. just submit or are all dead. Um, well, there's not really too much we can do about that. And that is like there is a lot that individual that that trained and motivated soldiers with small arms and munitions like javelins can do even to resist a country with with overwhelming air power. The corollary to that is that in doing that a lot of stuff, everyone around them dies. The city is turned into a graveyard. Um I've I've seen that with my own eyes. Uh and that's that's I mean got to be the thing if if you're looking at this with any kind of reasonable eyes and not just like trying to find a, a political angle to support that has to be your main concern is that the potential here is for a tremendous loss of life and also for the creation of millions of refugees um and this is something in another audio clip that you published a bit earlier on twitter you say which is that like if this goes as badly as it can no matter what your politics are this will become your problem 100 percent, yeah I stand behind that absolutely because there are a lot of Ukrainians and while most of us have no desire to live under the Russian yoke, the majority of us are not trained fighters. We're just people, mm-hmm. just regular people. And I know, um, especially in the U S um, with our like out of control gun culture, uh, oh boy. imagining <laughs> like they're the, the singular guy, you know, they're, they're the macho man. Uh, with with all the guns, and they can yeah. take down the government all by themselves. I'm sorry, it's a fantasy. It's a fiction. Um, that is not how things work. Uh, and quite frankly, most people are not psychologically suited no. to combat. That's why armies take so long to break soldiers down to teach them to murder people, because that is not something humans do naturally. And the majority it, of people subjected to that kind of violence will run. And again, there are 44 million of us, yeah. and they will run and run and run pretty much everyone in the world. You saw this with Syria, saw yeah. this with Libya, 
Um, you've seen this pretty much with every single place that has experienced massive violence in the modern world. Um, that's the reaction. Yeah. And, and yes, when we run, we bring all of our biases and problems and cultural predilections to you. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the note to end on. And it, it, it is, you get a lot of folks, you know, who, who rightly, you know, focus on and, and think a lot about revolutionary struggles in places like Vietnam and, um, and in Afghanistan. And we'll point out that like, well, you don't need to have as advanced a military as your opponent to win. And again, just the, the corollary what, to what that all, winning? yeah, it, the corollary to that is that like, yeah, but millions of people die. <laughs> millions of people died in Afghanistan. Millions of people died in Vietnam. Um, that's, that, that is the reality. Yeah, you can resist an imperial power with minimal technology, but you're not going to leave that fight with a family alive still. You know, like that's, that's how it goes. Um, so let's all say a little prayer for, I don't know, peace. (laughs) Uh, I hope the, the, the worst doesn't happen. Um, what, you know, has there been kind of mobilization that you've seen within the, the, the activists, the anarchist community in, in Kiev, um, to, you know, any kind of mutual aid stuff like, or is it just one of those situations where it hasn't started happening yet and nobody really knows what would even be useful to do if it does? I'll say this. um, It may come as a little bit of a shock, Mm. but anarchists are not typically the best at organizing. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically, like a lot of my uh, friends who are active in the anarchist um, movement in Ukraine have simply joined the territorial defense battalions mm-hmm. um, or the regular army and will simply fight as soldiers. Um, there has been a very strong, I don't know if you call it denial, um, a, a colleague of mine used the term doomed optimism. And I really like the sound of that. So let's go with that. Yeah, There's been this really strong doomed optimism amongst Ukrainians that the worst will not happen. And there's no real reason to prepare for anything because well, things are going to be fine. Um, and that's what our government tells us as well. Things are going to be fine. They don't see any massive attack groups. Or I mean, I feel like that's contradicted by the the open source intelligence that I've been looking at. Yeah. But I, I am just one guy. I obviously don't have the intelligence apparatus of a nation state. Um, so, I mean, maybe they're right. Um, but generally speaking, people have just, been joining the army, going to um, tactical trainings. Um, but this is all very basic stuff, like going to the woods, learn how to set up camp and, you know, clean a rifle kind of kind of things. Um, nothing like combat training, because where would you get that except by joining the army and going to the front? Yeah, it's the kind of training that might keep, in the event of a full conflict, one out of 10 of those people alive long enough to learn how to fight. Yeah, and, and that might be worth it. That yeah, I mean, the, yeah, if you're talking um, about, like, yes, not not to say people shouldn't be doing that because people should do yeah, absolutely. whatever they can. Um, how are you, kind of to close out, like, as this, like, doom scrolling is a thing we all talk about, and there's there's plenty. I mean, just sitting here in Portland, we just had a, a mass shooting on a protest this weekend, and so there's a lot of doom scrolling going on in my community. But we're not staring down the barrel of 190,000 
soldiers, you know, potentially uh, uh, hitting us from the air and ground simultaneously. How do you, how are you like focusing on the stuff that you can do anything about and the stuff that you can productively handle without losing yourself in that? Copious amounts of cannabis. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad you guys have decent pot access. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't know what I'll do if, um, if my current supplies got out, <laughs> to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's been definitely a, a struggle. Um, and the past couple of days, especially my mental health has not been, uh, especially great. Um, but again, I'm one dude, like I'm not in very good shape. I have poor vision. One of my eyes don't work. I'm diabetic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to go out and, and grab a rifle and start killing every ruski I see, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, I've got a job to do. I, uh, as an English language journalist in Ukraine, um, I have, this is your busy season. Yeah. It's my busy season. Like one of my jobs is to counter Russian disinformation and to like tell people the truth of what is going on here. Um, and that role will only get more important, uh, if the, the conflict expands, um, from, from the, the scope that it is now. Uh, so how am I doing? Well, I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. Um, haven't off myself yet. (laughs) And, uh, uh, I'm still, I'm still working. So I think as, as good as I can be under the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I hope your weed supply stays stable um, at the very fucking Crossing least. my fingers. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Romeo. Um, do you have anything you want to plug kind of as we as we go out here? Um, just if you uh, really want to know about what's going down in Ukraine, I am co-host of a podcast called Ukraine Without Hype. You can find it on any podcast platform. Um, and if you really want to get a look at what's going on in English um, with only a tinge of leftist bias, <laughs> um, then tune in. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Hype Ukraine. Um, and again, on any podcast platform uh, that you you so desire. Awesome. Well, check out Romeo there. Check out this podcast. And, uh, you know, just try to keep your eyes on the situation and don't let yourself be a... Uh, overwhelmed by what some random person on Twitter tries to sum it up as. You know, people are more complicated than that. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, 
sports, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. It could happen here. Uh, coming to you live from my room in Chicago. But, but importantly, we're, we're, we're coming to you live from It Could Happen Here Central, where the gamers have seized the pod. It is me, Christopher. It is Garrison. Hello, fellow gamer. Hello. I'm in the gaming trenches with my Razer headset on, looking into my uh, NVIDIA-powered viewfinder, and I'm ready to continue on the fight. It's going to be great. We're talking about we're talking about gaming, we're talking about the military, we're talking about why the two of them crossing is extremely bad. And uh, with us to talk about this are two people who are uh, somewhat less clownish than we are, Um this is Katie and Chris from Gamers for Peace, which is a, a initiative of Veterans for Peace. Uh, wel- welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Hey, thank you. I, I take offense at being called less clownish than you guys. <laughs> I'm just trying to live up to your standard. I'll have you know, I am very, very clownish and clumsy and all of those good things. And they trusted me with weapons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So I guess starting out, 
Uh, I, I wanted to talk about, I guess, very generally the, the, the history of counter-recruitment, because this is something that's been going on in the U.S. military for, I mean, really is like, from, from what I could tell, like about as long as there's been, you know, rec recruitment for the military. But I was wondering if we could start, I don't know, maybe, maybe around sort of the Vietnam era when you, when there's, you know, very, very serious and intense sort of left-wing kind of recruitment, and then we can go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So coming out of uh, Vietnam, you have uh, Vietnam veterans against the war forming, uh, and there's a massive pushback on uh, the draft. Uh, the anti-war movement is pretty much at its strongest, and Vietnam veterans against the war over time becomes a veteran for peace. Veterans for Peace has a long legacy of sitting at the front of the anti-war movement, peace movement, participating in uh, nuclear abolition work, counter-recruitment work, de-escalation work out of um, Save Our VA, helping veterans get assistance with uh, disability benefits and making sure that the, the traumas that uh, veterans suffer and the communities of um, impacted by the military suffer are getting um, treatment for the care. Uh, deported veterans because Vietnam vets served and then got deported. And that continues to this day. Uh, so v veterans for peace had a, a multi-pronged approach to the anti-war efforts, uh, in, uh, 2000s around, uh, 2007 ish, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq veterans against the war later known as Iraq, Afghanistan veterans against the war comes along. And that's a new generation of veterans carrying along built on the uh, legacy of veterans for peace and Vietnam veterans against the war. Um, you know, there's a long history of coffee shops, GI resistance, um, outreach, uh, doing work with veterans, trying conscientious objective, objective work, um, GI resistor work in, in there. And there's a, just a long legacy of just veterans sharing their experiences and coming back and really, uh, wanting to make sure nobody else goes through that and making sure that they get the help they need and kind of slow that, that beat of the war drum that seems to media seems to always be picking up. Um, uh, and that's where we came in. That's definitely a, a good way to put it. Now, um, especially born out of the pandemic, a lot of the recruiting had to move online. They, they didn't really have, if they wanted to keep rec recruiting, they had to go online. And that's where a majority of the newest generation is. They are watching Twitch. Twitch had a viewership, like uh, pretty much competing with Netflix streaming um, as of this summer. And I'm sure that hasn't really changed much. I'm sure it is just as popular. Um, and the audience for Twitch skews very young. So that's really what started to worry members of, of Veterans for Peace. Like, okay, we might need to ramp up uh, truth and recruitment um, initiatives, which is what Gamers for Peace came out of. Because the, the, the thing is, if you're forming a parasocial relationship with these younger kids by streaming and forming those relationships, getting them on Discord and talking to them, you're getting a one-sided view of what military service is about. And you are definitely not getting the uh, imperialist informed viewpoint for sure. Um, so veterans for peace kind of came out of that. This like very insidious looking, uh, hidden and subtle way of, of recruiting using the video games that have already historically been used for recruiting purposes. So it's like a double, <laughs> it's like a double whammy they got on us there. For those not inundated in the gamer warfare, like we are, um, <laughs> How let's uh, I think we should briefly describe what Twitch is because I know a lot of people probably 
probably isn't actually aware yeah. of, <laughs> of, uh, of Twitch. Um, You're not as aware as we are down in these trenches fighting <laughs> off the, the, the cyber net stuff, the bad uh-huh. metaphor, sorry. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I guess Twitch is like a live streaming platform that is primarily used for live streaming uh, people playing video games and people kind of develop their own like brands and like personalities and like parasocial relationships with an audience via them playing these games and kind of adding their commentary you know variety of games you know sometimes it's like mostly chatting with people like inside like a group chat while playing a game um, or you know it's more focused on the game itself it kind of varies but yeah it's a, it's a, it's it's arguably the biggest live streaming platform i think it was bought by amazon a few years ago um and yes there is a there is a a, a us there's a there's a few us like military uh, channels on on there that are actually like relatively popular um i guess the other thing to kind of get into for some background is like you mentioned you already kind of alluded to this but like the history of the us military using video games for propaganda because they've been they've been one of like the earliest funders of games for this reason i think getting into that history is like interesting um and something that some people are definitely aware of but a lot of times can get overlooked despite you know call of duty being the one of the biggest video game franchises in the world yeah absolutely the um Military's involvement in video game, video game design, using it as recruitment, using it primarily, initially at first, it was thought of as uh, a training tool. And they started yeah. looking at it for training. Um, if you th- think back to like early 90s, Doom, the original Doom had a mod released uh, called the Marine Mod. It was uh, a modification designed for the Marine Corps to use to train Marines in as early as the early 90s when Doom was at its height. And then, then that grows from there. Uh, you have First to Fight. Uh, what is it? Uh, a game called First to Fight features Marine Corps, uh, Marines in dress blues where you're tactically uh, fighting a battle. And, um, and Which you never want to do. If you know anything about the Marine Corps blues, you do not want to be doing anything in those that isn't getting drunk. Exactly. So. <laughs> Just drunk and dancing in blues is all they're good for. Um, yeah, so you have you have a uh, first to fight, and then it turns into Call of Duty, uh, America's Army, which uh, thankfully just got pulled down all its platform from its platform. That's a huge win. Uh, but the Army started design getting into the development of video games uh, for training, uh, and then got into it for as recruiting. And America's Army is a perfect highlight of that, where they just flat out had recruitment posters and training things uh, in there with links to how to get to recruiters or get more information about joining the military, joining the army. Um, you have Arma 2. Uh, you could you could argue and draw the line from uh, military training simulators to PUBG Underground, which is one of the uh, most fam- biggest uh, battle royale games, which is where you get Fortnite. Yep. Uh, out of so you can draw these lines straight from the military's involvement in designing training and recruitment materials to what our kids are playing the most these days. And really, one of the most kind of sick factors of this is like how much games have been designed and pushed towards basically training people for, um, like, uh, I guess I'm trying to think of the term, but like combat at a distance in terms of like drone like drone combat there's just like they started just using xbox controllers 
for some like drone missions. Like like it's like they are specifically looking at the pipeline of specifically young males who get into this type of gaming and trying everything they can to push them into a career where they just kill people in overseas countries using the same technology using you know using you know, video game controllers using like um you know um, operating systems very similar to what were you be, being used in video games and i mean like in video games are a very effective propaganda tool if you're thinking like okay i mean i just enjoy playing war games it's not like what's what's the big deal I'm like sure like i also enjoy playing war games sometimes they can be a fun um you know i, I like those like tactics-based games but these have been shown to be very effective at recruitment to the point that video game footage and video games were like one of isis's favorite recruitment and propaganda tactics as well like this is it's a it's a thing like it's not it's not just like oh it's fine like no these these things are actually kind of a problem yeah um it, they are very effective in that manner as a recruiting tool and there is a real synergy between uh, gaming developers and the DOD because of how effective, uh, you know, that recruiting can be, or uh, that recruiting tool can be, um, similar to movies, uh, you know, the military entertainment complex is a, is a term yeah. thrown around a lot for good reason. You know, you have, there is a black box of politics whenever yeah. you're watching a movie that pits, <sighs> uh, yeah, some sort of power structure against whatever the villain is doing. There's, there, there's always something there and video games are not too different from that. You just have a little bit more say in where the story goes, but maybe not even, it depends on, on the development. But oh. um, there was an article in, in, in the Atlantic uh, that was, it was actually like about a book um, from, I think it's Dexter Thomas, uh, Warplay. And it's all about uh, video gaming and the, 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 the relationship with the military. And they said, the Pentagon avoids pitiful, expensive efforts to create their own training simulators and developers get fat government checks. So they can help fund these uh, new games, new virtual reality things under the uh, uh, guise of it being a useful training tool for uh, training in like virtual re virtual reality environments, which scares me already. Um, and then game developers are like, great, I can get a government grant. So even if this flops, I st we still got the money out of it. That's not an uncommon phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of like filmmaking, yeah, like there's been there's rules for like Pentagon tr contracts with fil film studios to be like if you want to use you know U.S. military equipment or personnel, you need to follow these specific rules to portray the military in this light, um, which often do get followed just because people want to use the cool equipment and stuff. You know, I I'm still angry mm -hmm. that my that my beloved Transformers got cucked by the U.S. military in all of their films, <laughs> um, got and as a result, the films are pretty pretty bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll have you know they are film art. No, I'm sorry. I can't even keep it straight. I, I hope. I hope. As a as someone with many, many Starscream action figures, I, I dream of one day of having good Transformers movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you like, have the 80s classic. You have the, 80, you have the 80s classic. classic. Um, you've got uh, you've got the touch. Um and the Bumblebee film was okay, but it's even still that one got cucked, that one got cucked by the military pretty pretty severely. Yes, it's it's funny that you mentioned uh, ISIS using uh, yeah. video gaming. Uh, There's just a recent report came out. Uh, it's linked to the UN. I believe it's linked to the UN Council on uh, Counterterrorism or Office of Counterterrorism, uh, talking about violent extremism in gaming. Uh, the link between video games and violent extremism. And what's really interesting is it's not so much that the video games themselves are the issue. It's the gaming adjacent spaces. It's the parasocial relationship development. 
it's the meme and it's the what what we've what we've known in in the gaming world for a while as, as associated with like the behaviors and culture around Gamergate and things things like that, where we see this uh, this toxic culture that um, is easy to cultivate inside these spaces and and be co-opted for more nefarious things. Um, and that doesn't that's that doesn't mean that the military isn't banking or utilizing those same principles to to get its recruiting messages across. Uh, the military is another violent extreme position, right? You're whether it's you're the the violent arm of capitalism and the state, or or a violent like domestic terrorist or something like that. You're still um, opting into, or your position is still getting uh, mobilized towards potentially doing violence. And these gaming adjacent spaces are make it really easy for recruiters of all sorts to be in there and uh, push people to more of that side of things. Yeah, one of the things I remember when I was like a teenager on Twitch was like, so I, I watched just like a lot of Hearthstone streams, right? And this was like, these were, you know, like completely mainline Hearthstone streams. And there was the, there was this artist who everyone called Kebab the German. And uh, yeah, so it turns out that Ke- Kebab the German was a, mis- was like a, a, a shortening, like abbreviation of his actual name, which was Remove Kebab. And this guy's stuff was just being played on like every major, like, like Twitch, like all, all the major Hearthstone streamers were just playing "Remove Kebab" songs, and it was like, and this this was just like what, like this is just what Twitch was in like 2014, 2015, and yeah, like there there's so much like the 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 extent to which just this sort of like, I mean, just overtly fascist like milieu would just seep into just like you know, here's a bunch of people playing a card game. And, and like, it wasn't, and it right. wasn't even like, like, I mean, some of these streamers were like really reactionary. Like I've seen, I mean, like I've seen TFT streamers who like, will like watch videos of like cops doing raid, like raids on people's houses on stream. Like, it, you know, it's like you have those people who are like really far, yeah. but some of these people were just like, I don't know. They're just I mean, sort a of lot like, of them are just regular people. Like a yeah, lot of them just regular don't people. consider themselves extremists by any yeah, means. Yeah. But, far but right. It, yeah. But it's just sort right, of Right. But like, they culturally. laugh at the shock value. Yeah, well, yeah. even then, like some of them, just like I, I think with like like with 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 like uh, with Kebab the Germans, like they just didn't know, like they just they just like didn't know what was going on, and so they were just you know spreading all of this stuff, and it was like it was, it was horrifying. Yeah, absolutely, and actually, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, about a year ago, the the Army Esports Channel got in trouble because one of the streamers didn't catch on. Uh, to two, there were two usernames that were explicitly white supremacists. One of them was um six million was not enough yeah uh yeah yeah real real gross and i guess like just in the whole uh idea of multitasking between playing a game trying to interact with chat and trying to make sure you're you're on screen and and all of those things they didn't realize it or they willfully didn't realize it i don't know which one and i'm not going to make a judgment either way but they did they had to shut down that stream and i don't think they streamed for a couple of weeks after that they had to like reassess some some things because they're like hey uh actively you know white supremacist people are on your stream you should probably you should probably do something about that (laughs) yeah i feel like if you're the u.s military streaming on twitch that someone's job should just be to prevent that from happening like yeah but, but you like, know, they, they have they, the resources yeah but it's like they, they, they kind of have this problem though because twitch has a there's a there's a huge just like like core like a, a large enough base of twitch users are just like fascist or like hard right wingers 
that do things like like there there've been a persistent problem on Twitch for for years now of like these hate raids yeah. like people doing mass raids on like anyone who's not white and anyone who's like not a, a cis white dude and just like hate raiding their channels and like spamming the chat with like slurs and stuff like that and you know when when that's you know and that that's to a large extent like yeah like those those, those are the people like you know that, that that's a large enough part of Twitch that like even 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 if you're like taking the most charitable thing, which is that the U.S. like the army is not overtly recruiting white supremacists, which like okay, but like even even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Like that that's a large enough part of just what Twitch is. That Absolutely, they they have an incentive yeah, to turn a blind definitely. eye. And and radicalization, uh, specifically right wing and white nationalist radicalization in the military, is well studied and well established yep. as an existing phenomena. I knew someone personally who. Uh, got caught trying to smuggle weapons for a neo-Nazi group. And that's all I'll say on that. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is a thing yeah. and it hits really close. It is definitely a phenomenon that happens in the military. And um, these paramilitary neo-Nazi groups actively recruit from people coming out of the military because yep. they have the training set they want. Yeah. And I mean, I'm trying to figure out a way to tie this back to recruiting online. But it, like with all of this in mind, it is very insidious that the target is explicitly young kids and I, i'm not saying that just to be like oh you know because we've gotten a lot of we've gotten pushback with saying well the, the military doesn't recruit kids they can only sign up when they're 17 like, no first absolutely. of all that is a kid that first is complete all. bullshit yes I legally a child that is, no, it's, first it's, of all, that is a kid <laughs> second of all <laughs> it's like it, the, the thing is just, it's 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 just like grooming children that's like yes. that, that's what it is like yes, you're it is it it's is. the same process of grooming that's that's what's going on yeah one, right. one of one of my best friends growing up like like this kid was my best friend for like a decade like i, I met him in like Aww. first grade he was my friend for the entirety of school and then he got like because his parents sent him away to like uh one of one of those like uh like summer like mi like military oh, school no. camps oh, and he was just never the same afterwards and he's like a fascist now and yeah that's it sucks. Yeah, like, it it that does suck. That yeah. there's not a better word for that. That that sucks. <laughs> because yeah, they can't sign up until they're 17. But that's not the point. Isn't to convince 17 year olds. Mm -hmm. The point's exactly. to the point's to ingrain this idea in them when they're like fucking 12 years old on the internet. And that is just what grooming is, right? Starting it when you're when they're young. So when they're old enough, they will be able to sign up for the thing. Like that's that's what the process is. And yeah. that's what, like, you know, military propaganda recruitment's been doing for a long time. But the, specifically the way it's being done on the internet around gaming is extra yeah. insidious. It was literally, it is explicitly said by one of um, uh, a recruiting officer, Dr. E. Casey Wardinsky. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but he literally said, we have to confront this question of, will he wait until they're 17 or will he start talking to them at age 12, 13, 14, 15? When they uh, form the set of things they are thinking about doing with their life, exactly. so he's literally saying, "We want to groom children." Is what. Yeah. <laughs> so I think now would be the time to kind of get into the countering side of things. Is like, yeah. yes, this is a, this is a big problem as we've laid out the past twenty minutes. Um, what can we do about it? Yeah. Uh, so what can we do about it? There's um, a good deal that we can do about it, right? Um, we we. Veterans for Peace, the Truth and Recruitment uh, uh, Working Group, came up with an idea for uh, the Gamers for Peace initiative. Concerned veterans and gamers and uh, and allies, because Veterans for Peace isn't just comprised of veterans themselves; it's also allies and accomplices. Um, 
came together and started forming the, an online community of our own, um, where we uh, have kind of developed uh, some four channels of change, this concept of four channels to change. Uh, one, do education, talking about uh, uh, sharing our experiences as veterans, talking about and unpacking uh, recruitment tactics and techniques, uh, start talking, being extremely vocal and raise awareness around the, the recruitment techniques that we, we've already been talking about, right? Uh, second, we're doing some mentorship and leadership stuff, uh, starting to develop uh, programs in local communities that offer alternatives to the economic draft, right? Like just throwing it back to uh, where we started talking about coming out of Vietnam, it was already said that Sergeant Hard Times is the best recruiter and it posts, posts the draft. So we went, when we went to an all-volunteer force, you have to have a reason to join. And there, there's a thing called the economic draft, and it's the impoverished conditions that many kids and people face that force them to go into the military, right? You don't have health care coming out of high school. You're in an abusive home. You're not talking to a guidance counselor. No college is coming to you. You don't know how to pay for college. You don't know where what you're going to do because you're 18 and on your own, and that's what we keep telling kids. So you have the economic draft, which encourage, gives an opportunity for recruiters to go, hey, this, this program will solve everything. And what, what people don't realize is what's being asked is, are you willing to kill for a Camaro? Are you willing to kill just to have a roof over your head? Are you willing to kill for Medicare? Right. So we, we're starting to fo- focus on developing mentorship and leadership programs, um, include helping kids and, and young adults get into college or find mutual aid programs in, within their communities, start doing stuff locally because this, the problem is pervasive. Right. Not everybody needs to escape abusive home and is fine staying in their community, but doesn't know how to survive within the community because they don't have the resources there. And we also look at the what's going on in the world today and and recognize that things must be done at a local level um, and youth can be, be part of leading that change, right, in addressing some of the, our world concerns. We ourselves uh, do direct actions. We go to uh, gaming conventions, speak out, try to actually do counter recruitment right where the recruiters are. Yeah. Uh, we just it's, it's really pervasive if you if you if you go to any kind of con or any kind of con, mm-hmm. any kind of like game fest or whatever um you know comic cons there will always be multiple military re- recruitment booths there always um, like like navy uh, marines army national guard like all of them they, they 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 will all all be there and it's not not my favorite thing to see no no and no and it's frustrating either yeah Board games aren't even safe, right? The the Army esports team has a 40k team. So if you play Warhammer 40k, they have a nationally or internationally ranked 40k team playing in, in the major circuits. Um, you know what's most insulting about that? Sorry, Chris. Yeah, what's ahead. most insulting about that? Um, and I know this because one of the streams that we do, I hosted, is called Ad Slam because we started out as like roasting military recruitment ads, but it kind of morphed into just like general veteran and military depictions and media. And one of them was on the, or at least referenced the army esports, uh, Warhammer 40 K team. And you know how people will like take their figurines really seriously. They paint them. They look really cool. The army like spray painted them gold and it's called it a day. And I'm like, really, you have all of these resources. You are using the recruiting budget, which is ridiculous and astronomical. And you, you spray painted them gold. Are you kidding me? Come on. And it's just an insulting that it was so low effort, but they still get the praise. Um, a lot of people report like having positive viewpoints of the military after interacting with members of, uh, you know, the esports team or the booth or or whatever. So I'm I'm genuinely annoyed that it's also low effort on that matter, and they're still getting a positive response. It bothers me. That's a, a perfect highlight because being there on like 
uh, I hate using military terms nowadays, but being their boots on ground, you know, uh, at, at, <laughs> these <conventions laughs> at these conventions, uh, doing, providing truth and recruitment, right. Uh, talking about alternatives, uh, really just being there in front of recruiters and, and talking to the, the people that they're targeting and family members, letting them know like, Hey, we, as veterans, right. Don't let this be what shapes your child's future or your future. Right. There's other opportunities for you. Um, and, and, you know, whether that's, if you're into gaming, start designing games, right. Uh, like there's, there's so many opportunities within the gaming community that doesn't want to put you into the military pipeline also. Right. So it's not the game's fault. It's not like it's, it's a tool that the state's using right now. Right. Um, and then we're trying to form some, our own esports teams also, right? So we can compete directly against them, uh, kick their ass in some of the tournaments that they host. Um, you know, my, my dream is to see some Gamers for Peace jerseys getting awarded, like some trophy next to the Army esports team and just dunking on them. So across all the all Even the if we games. lose, if we're up there, we still get to dunk on them. See, we had so much more fun. We don't have to go clean up Eric's room after this. Like, the, the ultimate goal being uh, us being able to provide tangible alternatives. So uh, a kid coming out of high school thinking like, well, I either go into a lot of debt to go to college or I join the military. If we can get um, not a hold of them, that seems predatory. But if we can talk to them or uh, our organization can provide that alternative and say, oh, well, you don't really have to do that. We have a scholarship program that we can offer you or we uh, can provide at, le- at the very least education about what they're really getting into so they can make a better informed decision. Because the main problem that I have with the way that recruiting works is that you are not getting a view of what life would actually be like. You are not getting a view of what you are fighting for. There's a whole lot of like these vague concepts that they tell you that you're fighting for and that you're supposed to feel great about doing. But none of those are real in practice. Liberty or protecting the homeland. None of that is what you're doing. You're helping Northrop Grumman create a profit, right? Like there's, uh, and so at least at the very least, someone who thinks that they have no other options and in this country, that might not be too far off, right? We don't have a universal healthcare system. That was part of the reason why I joined the Marine Corps is that I knew I would get healthcare and I knew I would get money to go to college and not be in the student loan debt that I was in. So I'm definitely not alone in that. And, um, if maybe we can even just provide a more holistic view of what, decision that you're making that would be considered a win to us so that was my soapbox one of the important things is is just trying to push back on the most nefarious things that we're seeing right whether that's games that are becoming way too training sim training simulator uh there's another campaign that gamers for peace worked on and veterans for peace worked on called the platform six days uh, with CARE, the uh, mm. Council on American and Islamic Relations, uh, pushing back on a game called Six Days in Fallujah, which was delayed to quarter four of 2022 of this year. So we got it. It was pushed by a year, whether through our efforts or for whatever reason, but it was pushed by a year. Um, and this game is dubbed uh, Arab Murder Simulator. Uh, because, because it is. It is. Uh, we look at other games like Escape from Tarkov as as teaching fundamental skills uh, through tried and true teaching methodologies for military skills. Um, you know, we were talking about counter recruitment and truth in recruitment to give people an opportunity to make informed, have an informed decision about their participation in the war machine. But also we're trying to push back directly on the war machine and and say, 
hey, there's better uses of our money for for as as a government to take care of our people. There's a lot of fundamental things. There's the contributions to the climate crisis is uh, the military's number one impact uh, impactor of the uh, on the climate. Uh, war is never green. You can't greenwash the military. Um, the you know we have uh, so just so much going on around all the ways that people don't realize that military is involved. We have the future of drone warfare, kill cloud technology, gaming technology, and the military and militarism is so tightly wound right now that just pushing back and trying to parse those two things apart is one of the things that is most effective for counter recruitment and also for mobilizing people to be like, hey, we actually deserve better. Like, get out of my gaming space and like get me some food sovereignty get me get me like let let me be part of my community uh get out of the gaming space and stop using what is fun and has actual educational value mental health benefits physical health benefits communal impact social impact like this this gaming tool this gaming technology we have can be used for so much good uh but we need to disentangle the military's usage from it and and stop framing our our time, our time and joy uh, that we enjoy with our friends and family uh, through this lens that the military forces us to view it through. Because there are so many great games out there. Like, like we are in one of like right now we have the most amount of games ever released, most amount of good games like always being announced and released all the time. There's so many great stuff to play. And yeah, if anything that can be done to push people away from stuff that kind of promotes this, you know, colonial imperialist kind of mindset um, is great, right? Like That's why I kind of appreciate the cartoony aspects of Fortnite, even though I hate playing Fortnite and will never really do so. I still appreciate it as opposed to like the heavily militaristic kind of aesthetics that other, you know, similar battle royales show. Because um, I, I, with, with, with as many games out there as there is, yeah, I think uh, any kind of attempts to push people away from the more problematic aspects of, you know, specifically shooting games uh, is great. Yeah. And just noting that when you're playing these games, especially if they are relatively close to reality, um, understand the impact that you can have uh, by pointing out simply that your friend doesn't respawn in real life, right? And... Also, keep in mind, if you are playing a game that is close to a recent reality, that you could be playing through someone's actual trauma. So I'm not telling you not to play the games if they are. Uh, we've gone over a couple like Squad uh, and, and others that are like very, very realistic um, in, in their application. Just keep in mind when you're playing it that maybe look at it through that lens. Like, would how would you feel if you were playing through a game but it was the exact moment of, of your trauma. And I'm not even saying from the military side. I mean, from from the uh, uh, the people who are being bombed side, you know? So I just, just want to have more people be more mindful with what they consume and how. And again, I'm not telling you not to consume it. Just telling you to, to think a little bit about it and what that type of media can do while having that baggage onto it. And there is a place for that's and the military experience in gaming, right? Like when I was in, when I was deployed to Iraq, I took an Xbox 360 over there with me in, a, in the bottom of my sea bag. And we had on Camp Fallujah, we had a, a local area network of Xboxes in all the camps. And we sat there and played Halo and, and Gears of War when that dropped while I was there, 
right? Like it's how we stay in touch with each other. It's how we process like auditory things and, and, and our combat experiences, right? That's, that's valid sublimation and, and processing of, of our traumatic experience is a thing. And games have that. And that's not a military exclusive thing or a veteran exclusive thing. That's for all communities. Um, but what we have to do is add context and nuance to when we're playing these games and go, oh, um, there's another side to this story. That's the local civilian that just had uh, a bomb cave in their ceiling. Right. Uh, there's there's these these instances where we remove that because we're so focused on the competitive nature instead of the storytelling and the full scope of what that game is allowing us to process. Um, and that's why I don't like I'm not blaming recruiters or blaming like coming up to uh, people in the military and going, you know, you're horrible. It's not the right thing. Hey, I was there. Right. I did six years in the Marine Corps. And and, um, you know, instead of going, hey, you're a horrible person or things like that, like we're trying to offer them, them, the recruiters and other military members, community that go, hey, you're allowed to speak out against the things that you know are bullshit while you're in there. Because I knew it was bullshit while I was in there and I couldn't speak out. I didn't know I had a community to speak out to or with. And we're trying to offer community to them. Um, and that's beyond beyond just video games, but that's drone operators and infantry guys and and people that are just fed up with what they see in a, a system that is supporting a crumbling infrastructure, right? Like um, you can only deploy so many times without developing, either becoming completely dead on the inside or having developing some semblance of empathy that goes, hey, deep down, I know something's wrong here and I just don't know how to, uh, like, I don't know what that feeling is. Well, that feeling is, is just empathy for the human condition and not wanting to see people traumatized through war, right? Um, that, that idea of us going into, like, even post 9-11, like, immediate post 9-11 vets early on they had they went there with the right the right idea i want to defend my community i want to be, be do do service right like i don't have another option yeah i'm an economic drafty but all in all i'm really here to help defend my people yeah it was it was it was a genuine thought like it was a genuine idea right people you can very much disagree with like the intentionality and the propaganda that like governments were doing to promote the war and the unjust reasons for that but for the but for the regular people right yeah that it was it was it was genuine feelings that caused that to happen and overlooking that i think misses what makes the recruitment work yeah. you know if, if if you just look at all the people who join the military as being like oh they're just like bad people who want to kill you know brown people you're like that's you can think that but that doesn't actually do anything to understand how recruitment actually works and then if you can't do that then you don't know how to actually counter it right exactly if you are a veteran and you feel like we do this whole thing was bullshit you and that can be uh an incredibly alienating experience i've been there because it feels like uh with the amount of veterans we saw at the january 6th events um all the veterans that you see that get through to the right wing side of the culture of war just want to say that we see you. You're not alone. You are you are not crazy. I promise you. <laughs> we we are trying to build a community of people like that who understand it and promote healing through that community, political education through that, so that you can create resiliency within your community, and as well as at least put a little bit of pressure on the uh, military entertainment complex and the military recruiting apparatus. Yeah, uh, fuck the military. <laughs> fuck war. Fuck war. Yep. <laughs> It's truth. All right. Do you two have anything specific that you want to plug? 
Uh, yes, join our Discord. Uh, you can yeah. find, if you search the Discord, you can uh, look up Gamers for Peace and you will see us. Uh, on Twitch, we are Veterans for Peace, all one word, and we stream several times a week uh, gaming content, content about um, different alternatives to military service, uh, content breaking down propaganda and recruiting uh, efforts, as well as other political education things. Uh, sometimes it's just a random community game night as well. Um, actually, no, that's not random. Those are on Thursdays. So <laughs> go ahead, watch us there. Um, Chris, should I, should, should we add anything? I got something. Um, uh, the, if, if one of the first things you can do besides going to discord and checking us out on Twitch, uh, we actually have an online can digital, uh, direct action campaign going on, uh, that we're pushing to allow content creators on Twitch as a platform to be able to opt out of military ads, uh, on their channels. So that is our uh, campaign that we currently have ongoing. There's a petition. It is uh, bit.ly slash Twitch military ad opt out is the URL. That'll take you right to the Twitch petition that uh, feedback through Twitch. Uh, we're looking to hit a thousand at least ASAP uh, on that petition uh, to get some get a response from Twitch and then go from there, allowing content creators to take ownership of their of the the ads and stuff that are on their channels, at least when it comes to military recruitment uh, and then going from there. Uh, we also uh, are doing actions and planning things constantly. So be on the lookout, join the discord, all that good stuff. Oh, if you need help navigating that, I'm a mod in the discord at Plantifa, she slash they, and you'll find me. We'll uh, try to put that uh, link for the petition in the show notes so people can uh, find that with a with an with with an easy click. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, thank you two for joining us. We are it could happen here at happened here pod in the places in the places, <laughs> the yeah. places, you know, all Those the places. places. They're all there. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. And. Yeah, uh, go play. I don't know Mario Kart Eight or something. You know, something <laughs> something fun. I don't know. I I enjoy I enjoy the Mario Kart games as a as as someone of my age, very 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 integral <laughs> to my driving education. So yeah, go go play Mario Kart Eight. Fuck war. Fuck war. Fuck war. Not another generation. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Oh boy, it could happen here is the podcast that you're listening to. All right, St. Andrew, that's my job done today. Why Why don't you take over? Good job. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to another wonderful episode of It Could Happen Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, hoping to take a look at another book. Well, two books this time. Uh, this time, works of fiction. And this time, by an English, unfortunately, writer named Alice Huxley. <laughs> right? We'll be looking at Island and Brave New World. The sort of twins of speculative science fiction, I would say. Aldous Huxley was, uh, like I said, an English writer and philosopher. And he actually wrote a lot of books. Um, 50 in his lifetime, to be precise. He was also a French teacher who, interestingly enough, taught George Orwell. But I did not know from, that. Yeah. <laughs> But from what um what his past students have said, he wasn't a particularly good teacher. Okay. But he was a good speaker. Um, he was also a very very big fan of psychedelics and oh, yes. and mysticism and philosophy and particularly like Advaita. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Advaita Vedanta, which is like a Hindu spiritual practice. Yeah, I know he's he's even referenced a lot in like occultist and chaos magic books written like yeah. post the 60s he's yeah 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 he's he's like um that guy yeah what's like his <laughs> name again alan watts 
It's like oh yeah, kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, very interestingly, um, Huxley actually had LSD injected into his veins. On his <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yes, yeah, he was like he he was dying as you know one does on their deathbed. Sure, and that is, that is the traditional thing to do. Traditionally, yes. But while in the process of dying, because he had like advanced laryngeal cancer, he had to write to his wife, Laura. She, he was just like LSD, one hundred intramuscular. <laughs> and she just like, she's like, okay, hell she yeah, injects him. hell yeah, and she doesn't inject him fucking muscles. Yes, <laughs> and she doesn't inject him with one dose. She injects him with two doses, Damn and right then she he does. dies like. Several hours later. Incredibly based. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> Staggeringly based. And honestly, if, <sighs> if he was like speaking on his deathbed, I would really love to know like what that experience was like. Like, are you just like dancing through hell? Like what's going on? <laughs> I mean, it could, it could, I, think. I can see it being the most amazing thing and also extremely most bizarre terrifying and slightly thing. terrifying. <laughs> right. <laughs> As a general rule, when, like, Pete, they've done studies on, like, giving different kinds of psychedelics, usually psilocybin mushrooms, to um, like cancer patients uh, people who are on hospice, illnesses. and it, it, it generally reduces their fear of death. Yeah. Uh, they, could, they go in peace. Yeah. Yeah, it just makes them like, ah, you know what? Uh, everything is the same as everything else, and yeah. we're the imagination of the universe. I'm gonna go back into space. Yeah, <laughs> which is fine. Good for them. Yeah, yeah, good for them. Good for them. If I were on my deathbed, I probably wouldn't want to be thinking about death either. So, yeah, I mean that that assumes that you know we get a deathbed, you know, and that's the kind of the wild thing about death. You don't know when it's gonna happen. But to return to the topic of discussion. Brave New World and Ireland, right? To summarize the plots of both, I guess I'll start with Brave New World. It is the more famous of the two. I don't think a lot of people have heard of Ireland compared to Brave New World. Because yeah, I mean, Brave New I World read is Brave like New World in high school, but uh, I, I I have not read Ireland. Exactly, and it's like it really says a lot about society <laughs> <laughs> that 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 we read about the dystopias, but not the utopias. <laughs> But um, anyway, Brave New World, you know, it's really up there with like 1984 in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's notoriety. Um, it is like one of the quintessential dystopias. It's set like several hundred years into the future. Like unlike 1984, which, you know, took place in 1984, which is several decades ago, Brave New World was set in... 2054 sorry 2540 ce so yeah we're hundred years star trek times yeah 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 but however in the book it isn't called 2554 ce it's called 632 af af standing for after ford because in this world and i'm sure we'll get into this a bit henry ford the assembly line guy, the Model uh -huh. T guy, he is basically God. He That's is the God great. of their world, you know? So he, Yeah, that wouldn't be ideal. They, they say things like, by Ford's name and that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and um, his whole sort of assembly line structure, um, 
is basically extrapolated to society as a whole, right? There's this world state where emotions and individuality are conditioned out of children and everyone belongs to everyone else. And, you know, there's yeah, children are created in, in like factories and generated to be part of specific classes, whether it be alpha, beta, gamma, delta, or epsilon. So it's like, it's kind of like what's, what's, what's happening today, you know? in terms of the Greek alphabet. Um, we have the alphas who are bred to be like the leaders and stuff, and you have the epsilons who are bred to be like the menial laborers. Yeah. And you have the folks in between. And like they are literally conditioned, you know? So like in the factory, in the baby-making factory, which is in this case literal and not a euphemism for the womb, um, you know, they, they like hold back on oxygen or they apply certain chemicals or certain hormones in order to like condition people. So they don't do like genetic, um, like coding or whatever. They just, they do a chemical con concoctions in those sort of test tubes. And yeah, I mean, the story of the world is really how it's affecting like some of the top level people within it and sort of contrasted with, sort of reservations that exist in their world where people are a bit less restricted. Um, and it ends pretty tragically, but the next book also ends a bit tragically. The next book being Island, which is like the utopian twin for a brave new world in a lot of ways in terms of mirroring, mirroring a lot of the same themes yeah. that brave new world explores. Right. So in Ireland, there's this specific island called Pala, which is um, fictional. I mean, there was an area in India called Pala, but the island of Pala in this world is like, it doesn't exist, right? And it's basically seen as this oasis of happiness and freedom and where its inhabitants have resisted capitalism and consumerism and technology, right? Then this journalist, another British guy, named Will Farnaby, um, pulls up on their island and he's basically trying to scope out the island for exploitation because he's friends with this industrialist who's trying to, like, extract oil from the region. And um, while he's going through the island and really going through the society, going through the book, there are a lot of monologues and stuff. I mean, this book is kind of heavy, on like the monologues and the discussions. It's kind of like Alice Huxley's soapbox for all his ideas, just laying them all out there, right? So Will enters Palace as a cynic, but by the time he comes out, he's like, he's had like layers on layers of epiphanies. And I don't know, um, for those who have been reading Dawn of Everything um, recently, um, in chapter two, there... The, the authors, David Wenger and David Grieber, they sort of outline some of the discussions that were, happening, that were happening between Europeans and Indigenous Americans at the time of arrival and how those discussions were shaping both, um, well, primarily the Europeans' view of society. Interestingly, it's kind of like reflected here because, you know, I have this white man who pulls up with all his English <laughs> ideas and it's basically these indigenous inhabitants in Pala basically deconstructing his ideas through dialogue um, and through debate and discussion. 
And um, unfortunately, it doesn't end very well. Despite, you know, being convinced of the purity and brilliance of the Palanese way of living, um, he already made the deal with the industrialist. And Pala um, is, has basically been sold by a, na- by a neighboring country. And so its downfall is now, sadly, inevitable. And that's how it ends. Oh, and also, um, Will Farnaby kind of has like an LSD. Well, it's not really LSD, but it's like a psychedelic trip. Yeah, it's like a combination of like <laughs> yeah, mescaline and psilocybin almost. Yeah, yeah. But in, in true Aldous Huxley fashion. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a lot of the tropes and like themes that were present in Brave New World exist in Island, but as like their inversion. So like in terms of like, it show like 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 Brave New World. It's written before Huxley had uh, psychedelics. It was so like his his version of drug use is so different in that book. Cause it's more like a pacifying drug, um, whereas the drug use in Island is more like an like an enlightening drug. So like, but there's like a whole bunch of themes that like parallel, but are also inverted on each other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we're gonna get into those themes just now. But to summarize, Brave New World is basically humans becoming less than human because of all these technological uh, and sociological um, efforts. Whereas Island is like the opposite, where it's, you know, humans are able to come into the fullness of their humanness um, while still using science, except in a way to enhance their quality of life. I don't know if I missed any aspect of either plots that any of you want to like touch on real quick. No, no, not really. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I will say the one thing is interesting is because uh, Brave New World also has this sort of like weird, like going to a reservation plot that's like yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. a B plot, but you see sort of it's another one of those things that's kind of like I don't know if inverted's the right word, but the sort of context of it is very, very different in Island than it is in Brave World. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, in a sense, you have this outsider protagonist who is introduced to this alternate way of living um, and is transformed by it. Except in Brave New World, you know, he ends up killing himself. And in Ireland, well, he already sold out the island, you know. I will say um, one criticism that I want to get out of the way before we get into, like, the concepts and, you know, how they might apply to politics as a whole, really, is Huxley, like a lot of authors and thinkers and ideologues of his time has this very unsettling um, fixation on overpopulation. It's kind of like what we were talking about um, with the last book we discussed here. Um, This sort of weird fixation on overpopulation and, you know, people dying out and that kind of thing. Um, In in Pala, in Ireland, there's a sort of acceptance of um, of population as something that needs to be 
you know, avoided. And so I guess that brings us to the first theme, which is the use of contraception in both books, right? Like on one hand, you have in Brave New World where there's like mandatory contra- contraception and people are literally not allowed to like naturally give birth. You know, they have to have babies through test tube. Whereas in Pala, you know, there's reproductive education and reproductive choice and expressive sex. And it's really like a complete contrast. So I guess I want to do something like, uh, I like speculating and, and thinking about how anarchy would operate. Um, I think there needs to be a lot more of that in terms of um, creative works and discussions. I mean, like, there was At the Cafe by Malatesta, and there are some, like, utopian fictions out there, but, and, and like, less than utopian, but still interesting explorations of anarchist societies, like Ursula Kilguin's The Dispossessed. It is interesting to me that even in mainstream sort of imagining, whenever there's an attempt to envision a utopia, there's nearly always a lot of anarchist principles involved in that. Like yeah. it, it, it's basically impossible to imagine a utopia without aspects of anarchist theory making it into it. Exactly. Um, right. There tends to be like some elements of anti-work in there and like, you know, like... Use we want to be post work. We want to be post hierarchy. Freedom, you know, freedom of association. Yeah, there's a whole, there's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so I kind of want to look at that, look at these works through that lens as well. Here, mostly Island, considering Island is a bit closer <coughs> to anarchy than Brave New World is. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, <laughs> just yeah, a just, little just bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when you look at how sexual liberation is treated in Ireland. It is pretty much an echo of what anarchists were saying about free love in like the early 20th and like late 19th century. Yeah. You know, particularly like Emma Goldman, you know, like free choice and you know, contraceptive access and that sort of thing. Reproductive choice, free love. It's really in Pala, I would say, um, they have this sort of um, element as well of like communal child rearing. I mean, in, um, which is another thing. I, I spoke about that in like my video in December on the family. Like the fact that humans basically evolved in an alloparental arrangement, in a cooperative reading arrangement. Yeah. There's because even, of capitalism, we've moved away from that. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, if you if you study how kind of different, societies that were not capitalist handled child rearing there's a lot of like very interesting i think my favorite is it was some indigenous group in um south america whose like cultural belief was that um you didn't you didn't have like one man have sex with a woman and that like leads con- oh, yes, to conceiving yes, yes, of a yes, child yes, yes. it starts the process and so once you've started the process of making a child the woman then is going to pick out all of the guys that she thinks have traits that she wants to be like part of the child she's making and has sex with them because you're like gradually building the child exactly. uh, by having like adding additional sperm to it. <laughs> that, that Which has means some... that 
when they have the kid, all of those guys that she had sex with while pregnant have exactly. a responsibility to rear the child and teach it things, which I think is uh, objectively the best way to treat kids. <laughs> I mean, even on like, yeah. the, it's that's such an interesting metaphysical concept mm-hmm. in terms of like what constitutes like even like the the idea of genetic makeup, because even though it's not mm-hmm. like literally true, it still is like it, if, if you can convince yourself of that in your head, then it yeah. kind of is physically true. Um, and it will it will be true enough for the kid because like yeah really, because what, most if of they're raised by is, like, all these different yeah. fathers because we all know, taught things they, they, yeah exactly and pattern. those fathers traits are gonna like yeah. manifest in the child anyway because they were raised by them therefore I, it's I like think a we should all agree to just act like it works that way yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I mean like and, and also like in terms of like the group living in island versus like Brave New World Brave New World it's always like. You don't. You have group living because you've lost like the idea of individuality, right? Versus group yeah. living in island is more like you know how like anarchists have like group homes and like that's it's, yeah, it's very similar. to Group that. living allows you to be the best version of yourself because the best version of yourself exists in a community. Yeah, exactly. As yes, opposed there's, to there's, there's like a, there's being like a, a barista or whatever. There, there's yeah. a kind of like like a jokey version of this I think about a lot where it's like if you see a block and like you're looking at a, like a black block, right? It's like the the way you can tell that there are Maoists involved is if you see a bunch of people actually like legitimately wearing all the same thing. It's like like it's 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 like it's it's really like it's 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 extremely rare that like even even when you're doing this for security reasons that you can get a bunch of anarchists to actually literally all wear exactly the same thing because it's like it's like yeah you you have this sort of like I mean okay this is this is not like always true but like it, it's it's. I don't know. You 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 have this thing where even when you're like even when anarchists are like trying to sort of like fade into a single mass, it's like we like like you literally can't do it because everyone has this sort of like <laughs> this individual streak. I've definitely so seen strong. people be bad at block more often than I've seen them be good at it. Yeah, it's like I don't By know. Which I mean, the, like the actual hiding part of it. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. Like it, it's it's like it's it's. There's there's there, there there's a way of sort of egalitarianism in sociality where like you treat everyone as if they were exactly the same, and like and, and you know and there, there's models of this where it's like yeah it's like okay you actually try to like force everyone to be exactly the same where like everyone to be exactly the same in the class and like that sucks and you shouldn't do it and the alternative to that is everyone is just sort of like in a group but they're all like I don't I, I I'm not entirely sure if this makes any sense but it's. I don't know. I mean, the, it's there, like there, there the are ways you can have within a group thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like like the, the the purpose of the group is to like maintain like you know make ma- like ma- maintain the differentiation of the individual. Yeah, to foster what makes individuals yeah. really good at being like their own person and give them the tools that can you can set that up. Yeah, and I think exactly. I don't know, like exactly. culturally, we have like problems thinking about that because like the sort of American version of individuality has to do with like. No, no, no! You're you're an individual because you have no connections to anyone else, and it's like, well, this sucks and it's bad. Yeah, because, and that kind of goes back to the whole sperm building a baby concept, right? I didn't think I would ever use that phrase, but <laughs> in the sense individuals only individuals because their combination of influences are unique to them. Yeah. Well, not just that. I mean, obviously, there's a genetic component, and I'll know a lot, but. I think a key aspect of it is that, you know, because we are raised in these different environments, surrounded by different people, we have different experiences. That's what builds us up. Yes. You know, like I can, I can already name off the top of my head, like a bunch of like 
defining moments from my childhood. You know, that basically changed my course, you know, like the one time I got cyberbullied and that basically like shifted my perspective and my approach to the internet and that kind of thing. You know, it's like, it really, I really can't imagine how someone could come away with the idea that an individual is just an individual on their own. Yeah, they just, they Mm -hmm. just pop out and are that thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because like a large portion of you is built up of previous you and previous like like exist like your previous existence is what makes a large portion of yourself. And like, sure, you can say you have a little bit of like ego from the start, like your actual self, self that in that you know contributed to the way you interpret events, which then will in turn build your personality. But I think these things are not opposing; yep. these things work in tandem. But yeah, yeah, so there's like the, the whole group living component. And also in that group living component, you notice in, at one point in the book, um, one of the children, like basically in passing mentions that, you know, they don't want to go by a certain person because they're mad at them or whatever. And so they basically have that freedom to remove themselves from that situation and go and um, sleep at another house or another space until that sort of situation is resolved. And I think that also would really be a crucial element of anarchist society, particularly for children having that freedom of association and freedom of movement. Because imagine how many abusive situations could be avoided or remedied if children had the ability to come out of it, you know? We strip children of choice and that's what allows these sorts of dynamics to persist. Yeah. Which then leads to dynamics that persist in the next generation and so on and so on. It's this thing that's having a resurgence in the United States right now and is like at the core of all of the book banning and the anti-trans legislation, which is this idea that like kids shouldn't have a choice because that would interfere with parents having absolute control over the life of their child. And that includes the control to like if a child says, I'm this or I'm that, the parent can say, absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. if you had like this, um, <laughs> if you sort of like toured like someone from, from the past or someone who lives in like a cooperative reading arrangement that the parent, the child is the parent's property entirely, it would look yeah. at you like real funny because the child is part of the community. It doesn't belong mm-hmm. to anyone. You know, it's... It, if it belongs to anything, it just belongs to the community as a whole. Yeah, as as we all do. Yeah. But, yeah. Another element I think I find, um, I find really interesting in the way that Palinese society operates is that, and I guess in comparison to Brave New World, unlike in Brave New World, where drugs are used like um, like I was saying, like how drugs are used for pacification and control and self-medication and that kind of thing to sort of like chill you out and prevent you from basically going mad in a yeah. mad society. Um, in Pala, you know, drug use is used for bonding and for enlightenment and for social connection and social cohesion. And it is really, it really interesting that that he changes what drugs do in his books, like after he starts doing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
And I actually don't know. You know, I, I used to have because I I had the opposite arc with with drugs, where I started doing them when I was uh, very young and had the belief that like they were kind of inherently this mind opening tool uh, that could be used to expand the the borders of reality within human beings and. As an adult, um, in part through some of the research I've done on the far right, come to understand that, like, no, you can also use them to reinforce the very limited, terrible things you already believe. Yeah, in. and there are folks yeah. who do that quite effectively. It's like that sort of peel you esotericism kind of. Yeah, I don't know if I just made up that term. No, I, I like of, I like that term. It's it's. I was thinking of like it's, it's, an accurate, it's, um, it's an accurate. Yeah. It's an accurate term to describe the thing we're talking about. Yeah, I'm taking it. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is absolutely correct. Because, I mean, yeah, like those sort of psycho, psych- psychedelic substances and stuff, yeah, they can open your mind, but they are, they are ultimately drawing from your mind. Yeah. And drawing from your past experiences and beliefs in some capacity. The, the way right? I always describe it is that, like, psychedelics are an accelerant to the fire that you've already built, and they yeah. can make it flare up, and it can be really cool and awesome. And it can flare up and be utterly terrifying and be like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, but it's always kind of amplifying the things that are, you've already built through, like, the kindling of yourself. Yeah. It, 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 psychedelics do not create things um, within you, but they can lead you to realize things you wouldn't already realize. Or they can lead you to reinforce things that you're already doing and it kind of depends on what you go into it with it's like you know leary said i think it was leary the set setting and dose and like your mindset is one of the most important things for what's actually going to happen when you when you take psychedelics yeah and if you're a nazi you can yeah get better at being a nazi from taking acid if you're a nazi you're gonna see hitler pull up on you like yes my son continue the good work that's that's the thing a lot of people don't understand when i've tried to like when i tried to talk to people who are like really obviously like pro psychedelics and like yeah they're so like freeing they make you think about new ways and then i explain to them there's like well this isn't this isn't an easy segue but if somehow the conversation goes to the point of me talking about all the nazis who do psychedelics and and then like do like weird esoteric rituals while doing like psychedelic drugs it can like confuse these people because like how could you be a nazi while you're you know in that mindset and like well it's actually for all of yeah for all these reasons that we've discussed it can actually assist within that like like fantastical genocidal conspiratorial thinking it can really exactly. like, it can really give that a lot a lot of credence in someone's brain because so, if especially if you've spoken to someone who has taken psychedelics and have had a specific kind of experience you can't talk them out of that experience even. yeah as far as they're concerned that is that is solidified in yes. their mind you know this is reality i just had a glimpse of reality kind of thing you know yeah absolutely absolutely yeah it's one of those like if you want if you want an illustration of how psychedelics do not work the way some people claim. Uh, just make a note of the fact that at every street fight between fascists and anti-fascists in Portland, both sides, every single person had fucking pe- weed on them. Like <laughs> the, the, the the fucking the the far right like smoking pot as much as everybody else. Um, they just also do cocaine. Whereas yeah, yeah. whereas Antifa does ketamine, yeah. Yeah, Antifa does ketamine. <laughs> the Proud Boys do cocaine, um, and they both have weed. Everybody's got joints, yeah. and both people and, pe- and people on both sides have dropped acid and taken shrooms. 
Yeah, I, I can I can say this from a point of journalistic certainty, because during one of the rallies where there was a permitted event at the federal park, the police were there and telling people they could not take weed onto the federal park because it was federally illegal. And every like both sides, people were like, all right, shit, <laughs> like we're turning back because they couldn't walk on with the weed in their pockets. That's going to open up a whole kind of room to me because I don't know if you all saw this tweet I, I put out recently. Like, there's still this resistance to drugs and to particularly to like cannabis. And you would think that, you know, after decades of research and decades of understanding and really decades, not even decades, it's centuries of its use in various, you know, religious and spiritual practices, that by now, you know, in a post-colonial country, we'd reach the point where, you know, we let it go and we decriminalize it. But although the, the, we're kind of in the process of it, we still have this situation where the police are like constantly burning down like fields of cannabis. Like they pull up and they're like, we just seized and burned down like one million dollars worth of cannabis yeah and arrested this that and the other it's like why are we still at this point where um basic basic like plants and herbs and medicines and whatnot are still facing this stigma it's not grounded in any sort of reality or, or logic you know it's just colonial era prejudice but that was a brief aside yeah so yeah um i don't think i have much left to see about ireland and and brief new world well you know listeners go home put on some hitler speeches drop some ass absolutely it takes you absolutely not that is <laughs> the worst idea do not do that go to the woods <laughs> Go do do basically literally anything else besides that specific thing. It's that specific well, thing that is different, like different people can can disagree. No, no, like that is like one of the worst things to do to your own brain and psyche. Absolutely not. Yeah, just do whatever, guys. Liter literally anything else. Watch Star Trek. I'd put on put on off the air. I have I've watched a lot of Star Trek while tripping. See, there's there's so many better things to do than that thing you said. Mm -hmm. Go watch the movie Conspiracy starring Kenneth Branagh. See, that could... Take a shitload of mescaline. That, that could be funny. They don't even know what mescaline is. Can <laughs> <Me> neither? <laughs> Instructions mescaline. do not compute. If, if acid made time different. What? Yeah, that's kind of mescaline. I mean, mescaline's like the, uh, the active thing inside peyote. Yeah. Mescaline is, as a psychedelic, the most intense time dilation I've ever experienced, where, like, you will feel like weeks have passed, and it's been, like, seven hours. What? Um, it's pretty dope. Matt, I, I definitely recommend mescaline. Everybody go take mescaline. <laughs> I don't even know where I would get that. Um, well, you, if you, if you, there is a way to get the cacti, which are legal pretty much everywhere, because they're just cactuses, and a lot of people <laughs> use them decoratively, and then using a, um... <laughs> What do you call it? A pressure cooker. Um, you can you can get the mescaline out of the cacti. I've known people who have done it. I have not personally done it. Obviously, that would that would that would be, that would be crime. a crime. Yeah, would that never would be criminal. We would never we would never advocate that. 
Yeah, but but there are ways to there are ways that like a person with minimal resources can get mescaline out of uh out of the right uh cactus and um <laughs> Uh, people have done it, you know. So there's this, criminals have done so it. Bad people. There's this thing called Tor. <laughs> yes, because um, it's obviously criminality. Criminality <laughs> <is, laughs> is morality. You know? Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Saint Andrew, that was awesome. I'm gonna go read Island now. Um, it's I it's a good book. Brave New World, and I haven't read this. I would recommend. I, I am kind of like... bummed. I guess at the end of this, I, I am kind of bummed that. As as imaginative a, a, a guy as he was, his this was his final book story, too. Well, and his utopian story had to end with it being crushed essentially by industrial capitalism expansion, yeah, and yeah. like co-option. I mean, like it is, it is, it is interesting. Like, yeah, this this was his final book. This was like his yeah. like send off, um, in like well, in, in a way. There's a there's an interesting component though, right? Because like in Ireland, yeah, it's like a utopian society, but there is a king yeah and a queen mother but not they don't have like the kind of power that you know we would typically um bestow upon kings and queen mothers you know yeah, they're still the... they're still able to destroy the society ultimately by collaborating with the military dictator neighbor and the industrialist oil guy but i mean they are not really that involved in the day-to-day run-ins of their society. You know, like, Pala would be the same with or without them. And interestingly, the reason they were taking part in the destruction of Polynesian society is because they were educated in Europe by Christians and then went back to Pala. Yeah, it's interesting because he's kind of playing with, it sounds like, the same thing Tolkien was. Because, like, J.R.R. Tolkien at the end of his life kind of identified himself as like this weird sort of monarchist anarchist where he wanted there to be, he thought the ideal society was one in which people, you know, there was people could not exercise power over each other, but there was a little hierarchy and that you had a King who couldn't actually do anything. Whose purpose was to act as a figurehead. Um, and I, I don't entirely get what he was going through here. He wrote a lot on the subject himself. And it's interesting that Huxley's kind of playing with the same idea, but is, is obviously being like, well, I, this is a bad idea. You know, it, it could only work for so long, um, yada, yada. I don't know. I find that compelling. Uh, again, I want to read this, and that's something I may dig into more, is kind of like wh- how Tolkien conceived of the ideal sort of monarchy um, versus uh, how, how Huxley was thinking about it. I, I, I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen here. Uh, Garrison? Tor.com. No, don't. Sponsored by Tor.com. No, just drop some acid and Google Hitler. Okay, again, abs- like, ser- seriously, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Literally actually. do anything else. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. The woods are lovely. The beach is magnificent. Talk to mm-hmm. the ocean. It's, it's so much Go better. Go up a mountain. Go up yeah. a mountain. Unless you have, yeah, like you could go and role play as Moana or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to a go to a go to a comic con. Uh, Literally anything. My suggestions. I I I will talk about that experience at a later date. Mm -hmm. All right, that is uh that is the show. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. 
For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Get in zone. AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? Ah, thinking about gas mileage. You know, changing your oil with a full synthetic oil like Castrol Edge can help your engine get more miles. Right now, you can get five quarts with an STP Extended Life oil filter for only $36.99. Get started on your next job today with the parts you need when you need them at AutoZone or AutoZone.com. Get in the zone, AutoZone. Restrictions apply.